0: And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Today. OJ Simpson, a man whose trial for the killings of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman has been covered to death. Pun not intended, actually. Especially this summer. This past June was the 25th anniversary of the double homicide, and everyone's talking about OJ in the infamous murder trial all over again. So, why also cover it here on Time Suck? Well, despite the immenseness of the coverage, the totality of facts and speculation that has been scrutinized over and over by one legal expert after another, I'm still fascinated. I still wanna know more. I'm still curious about the tale of OJ the Juice Simpson. Also the overwhelming majority of the coverage of OJ revolves almost exclusively around the murders and the trial, but there's so much more to this story. I wanted to know more about the man and I learned a lot this week. Why did this trial become so famous? Not to be callous, but a lot of people get murdered in America every year. Generally over 15,000 people are murdered every year in the United States. So why did the murders of Nicole and Ron get so much attention? In a word, fame. But it's about even more than that. The OJ trial became famous in part because people generally aren't murdered or aren't accused of being murdered by someone even in the ballpark of being as famous as OJ Simpson. I can't stress this enough in this episode. OJ was really, really super duper famous before the murder trial. He was one of the greatest running backs in the history of the NFL, one of college football's greatest ever athletes. And out of America's best athletes, no one had successfully navigated into a film, TV, and commercial endorsement deal career quite like OJ had. Another running back, Jim Brown, would appear in far more films than OJ, but he wasn't in America's face nearly as often as OJ. His exposure not nearly as prevalent. And OJ was more accessible to white America than Jim was. Jim played tough guys on screen. White America was scared of a tough black man. OJ was the picture of likability, strong yet harmless, much more comedic than Brown. He seemed, ironically, so safe. By the time of Nicole and Ron's murders, this seemingly safe African-American man, this American dream poster child, had been in America's living rooms on their television sets on a regular basis for over 20 years. He'd first showed up nearly 30 years earlier as a handsome breakout star for USC, A year later, he's on the cover of sports magazines. A year after that, he's the number one pick in the NFL. He's popping up here and there on popular TV shows. Soon he's smashing NFL records and being talked about constantly on sports radio nationwide. Soon after that, he's in films and then starring in literally hundreds of television commercials. By the time of the Brentwood murders, millions and millions of Americans had grown up with OJ. They cheered for him in years worth of games. They laughed hysterically at him in the enormously popular naked gun movies they bought products he'd pitched. He was an inspiration to many, especially to black America. Many knew his story. A kid who came from nothing. A kid raised in the projects of San Francisco. A kid whose family was so poor, he had rickets. As a young child, his bones suffering from improper nutrition. He was a kid who would be lucky to walk without a limp. And then he somehow Forrest Gumped his way out of some homemade leg braces and into the NFL record books. He openly dated and then married a beautiful white woman and almost no one protested. Who'd have thunk that was possible in the late 70s and early 80s in America? White America loved this black man. I can't overstate how important that was to this story. And then he stabbed two people to death? The safe guy? The Hertz rent-a-car guy? Norberg from the Naked Gun movies? Get the fuck out of here. What? No, it couldn't be. OJ couldn't do that to everyone who believed in him. His guilt wouldn't just be a personal letdown. It would be a racial one. His guilt would throw fuel back on the still smoldering fire of American racism. Good old boys across the land would be saying evil shit like, told you, I told you. You just can't trust him. The trial of OJ became so much more than the trial of one man for murder. If anything, the murders got lost in this nationally televised, nationally scrutinized trial. It felt like racism itself was on trial. If you were white and you thought he was guilty, you were racist. A guilty verdict would just prove once again that white cops and really white America in general had to convict another black man for a crime against a white woman he didn't, he couldn't commit. We learned in some previous sucks that there have been a long tradition of framing black men for crimes against white women in America. OJ had just had too much success and white America just couldn't stand it. They had to drag another black man down, try and pull him back into the projects. But as you'll see today, the real story of O.J. doesn't have shit to do with race. And it has everything to do with the man who just couldn't seem to keep his hands off women. A man who saw his wife not as another person, but as an object for him to possess. I really think O.J. did it. Holy fuck do I think he did it. Not an ounce of my being believes anything else after spending a week looking over all this information. We'll look at a little of, of the evidence that led me to this statement today. And we'll look a lot into the life of the juice, the life O.J. led up to his infamous trial, and the life he has led since he was acquitted today on Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Huddle up here in the Cult of of curious. I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. the Master Sucker, and you are doing a lot of great shit with your life right now like listening to Time Suck and probably not killing anybody or starting random brush fires. Kudos to you. Recording today in the Suck Dungeon in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, the first church of Nimrod, Lucifina, Bojangles, and Triple M. Going to my second Michael motherfucking McDonald concert tomorrow night with Queen of the Suck Lindsay, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, doing the meet and greet. You bet your sweet, shine, sweet freedom, shine your light on me, ass I am. Uh, Hoping to post some spectacular uh, Michael McDonald photos on Instagram. I'm going to try Been yacht rocking my balls off in preparation. Uh, Back from vacation, recharged, reinvigorated, working hard on time suck app updates this week. More beta tests of Lindsay and I's upcoming new horror show. Been reflecting on how to keep the suck and the secret suck fresh and fun. Thankful that the world did not fall apart since I left. Loving the love I feel here on this passion project. Best job I've ever had. In the dungeon this week with not only the script keeper and the Reverend Doctor and Queen of the Suck, but also Princeton student and fact sorceress summer suck intern, Sophie Evans. Stick around for today's Time Sucker updates as well, explaining my controversial choice of emphasizing the Butcher Baker's stutter last week. A little chance for me to explain my entire comedic point of view. Uh, Over 8,000 ratings and reviews on iTunes now, and not too many people hate the show, actually. So that's a win. Thank you for your continued ratings and reviews everywhere. Spreads the suck so well. And uh, speaking of spread the suck, time to reveal the winner of the second round of the Time Sucks sticker street team doing a shitty drum roll. Nearly 2,000 stickers were slapped all over the world in the last couple months, mostly in the U.S., but still many made it overseas as well. Special thanks to the U.K. and Australia for leading the international invasion of suckery. Fucking amazing. Once again, so much fun to see all the pics posted online using the hashtag Spread the Suck. And out of all the posts, we randomly chose Austin Andrada. Congrats, Austin. Oh, yay. Thanks for spreading and posting every sticker you got. You just scored over $100 worth of Time Suck merch. Reverend Dr. Joe will reach out and contact you regarding your merch. Or you can reach out to Joe. You can email him. JoeTimesuckPodcast.com. Be like, hey, dude, what the fuck? I won. Give me my stuff. Uh, Will there be a round three? I certainly think there will be. We'll have more details about that down the road. Uh, Looking to be part of more cool community stuff like the street team? Well, over 10,000 people now in the Cult of the Curious private group on Facebook For people looking for even more social interaction, almost 3,000 on Discord. Uh, For people looking for even more uh, social interaction content, over 5,000 Space Lizards now on Patreon. Links to all of that in the episode description. And thanks again to our Patreon, Space Lizards, for helping us donate $2,600 this month to 100-plus abandoned dogs of Everglades, Florida Rescue. Link in the episode description for that as well if you'd like to donate more to that no-kill shelter. Back on the road this week, going to be just outside of Cincinnati, going to be eating some three-way Chili Mac. Liberty Funny Moan, uh, this Friday and Saturday. So get your ass there for some stand-up, uh, tooling everything up, getting ready for a re- special recording in October. August 1st through the 3rd, Charlotte, North Carolina, The Comedy Zone. August 4th in Richmond. August 9th to the 10th in Orlando. The next live uh, Ant Hill Kids Suck in Orlando at the Improv on August 11th. Thursday, August 29th, Hollywood, California. Showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood. Going to be at the Comedy Store. Going to be at the other Comedy Store in La Jolla. Just outside of San Diego, August 30, 31st, September 1st. Uh, also, new access design, WrestleMania t shirt in the store. Oh my God, Space Lizards gobbled this bad boy up on Thursday. But we have more in the store this week for everybody. Uh, Ed Kemper, Woody, Chica Tilo, me, all in the same dream team. Terrifying. Also, darkly hilarious to me. We're all dressed up like early, early 80s wrestlers. What's this big deal? We're we'll wrestling together. We limp together with tuck Shamcocks and the unit cards together. Uh, just like last week, at least just pop into the store. Check out the artwork. If there was no Time Strike podcast, but I just had a merch store, I'd be so damn proud of all the cool, weird shit inside of it. Access on fire with the new designs. Shirts made out of a 1,000% miracle tonic. 97% of any and all health problems gone. Guaranteed, or we will not give your money back. Uh, also hope everybody's enjoying the Feel the Heat vinyl album just shipped out last week. Some editions already sold out. Less than 15 tricolors left. Over half the Lucifina splatters are gone. Link in the store. Gift cards also in the store. If you want to give the gu- gift of suck merch in the future. Trying to figure out how to, do, how to do Patreon gift cards. Patreon doesn't have them, so you can share the secret suck. We're, we're brainstorming. We're trying to figure out how to, how to share that to people who, who don't have the, the money for that right now. Uh, okay, so I had to get through a lot of that quickly. I try. Sorry for all the announcements. Showbiz. Gotta slang that sweet peanut butter. Now let's get back to the topic of the week. The uh yeah, let's get back, let's get let's get back to it right now here on Time Suck. <music> the OJ trial is credited for jump starting the modern craze of 24-hour news, even reality TV. It was the most watched trial in history by far. According to a small study by GQ magazine, the economy was so entranced with this verdict, uh, the verdict day chaos, that the economy lost $480 million in productivity on the day the verdict went down. Long distance calls went down by 58%. Stock market trading went down by 41%. That's insane. Sony Electronics and Nielsen, that television research company, they conducted a, a joint survey to find out which TV moments had the biggest impacts on viewers in recent history The 9-11 terrorist attacks topped the list, but the O.J. Simpson verdict made it to number three. Excuse me, just under Hurricane Katrina, estimated that 150 million people, 150 million, uh, tuned in to see how the case turned out. Marsha Clark, one of the O.J. trial's prosecuting attorneys, explained America's obsession with the case uh, like this in her 2016 book, Without a Doubt. When I finished writing this book in 1997, I couldn't imagine that we would still be talking about the people versus Orenthal James Simpson nearly 20 years later. But really, no trial since has been as heavily covered, as widely followed, or as intensely analyzed. Nor has any other case stirred up such a maelstrom of issues, race, celebrity, domestic violence, and the impact of media coverage on the criminal justice system. And Marcia firmly believes OJ did it. Uh, Arsha, Marsha, uh, that was a weird combination Marcia in America. America was in a, Strange space at the time of the O.J. trial. It had been, it'd been uh, you know, uh, just uh, two years since the L.A. riots caused by what America collectively deemed uh, egregious police brutality against Rodney King. Racial tensions were very high. In this episode, we'll wade through O.J.'s childhood, his long-celebrated football career. We'll look at his romantic relationships, including his forgotten first wife and a woman who stuck with him for over 10 years after the death of Nicole. We'll run down a timeline for the trial of the century, and we'll also look at the massive amount of crimes OJ has committed since the 1995 verdict as well as what he's been up to recently. The suck isn't just a murder mystery. It's a story of OJ Simpson's rise from poverty to athletic greatness and then his fall as a narcissistic murderer. Uh, Murderer, my God, getting getting warmed back up again after gone a few weeks. Uh, Let's get to a BFTT, a big fucking time suck timeline, right after a word from today's first sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you today by a longtime fan and friend of the show, The Great Courses Plus. For many of us, school was about learning practical, marketable skills. That's good. But deep down, we really wanted to learn about what truly interested us, like dinosaurs, space exploration, painting, playing music. Lucky for us, there is now The Great Courses Plus, where you can learn about all of that and so much more. This service offers a huge library of audio and visual courses on just about any topic you can imagine. All delivered by experts who present the material in a way that's both fun and fascinating. Explore everything from the lost worlds of South America and extraterrestrial life to writing great fiction and learning a new language. With The Great Courses Plus, you can learn on any device and completely on your schedule. A little bit more flexible than school was. For sure, couldn't roll into school whenever I felt like learning back in high school and college. For sure, can do that now. I like it. You want to learn even more about the OJ trial after this suck? Well, go to The Great Courses Plus. You can learn about famous trials in general. There's a a course I found that's fantastic called Great Trials of World History. Put your eyeballs and ear holes on lecture 10, 29 minutes titled Litigation and Legal Practice, Closing Arguments, Driving Your Theory Home. Study the powerful example of successful, uh, of the successful closing arguments uh, of Johnny Cochran at the OJ trial, a legendary argument. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. The famous trying on of The Murder Glove, parodied later in sitcoms and sketches. We're going to talk about that more here in Time Suck today. Fascinating stuff. Make The Great Courses Plus your go-to for lifelong learning. They're offering Time Suckers a free trial of unlimited access to their entire library. Sign up today using my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Link in the episode description. BFTT right now. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. The story of the juice begins on July 9, 1947, when Orenthal James Simpson is born in San Francisco, California. Simpson's mom's family were from Louisiana, and it was his aunt who gave him the name Orenthal the name of a French actor she admired. Orenthal will be raised in the predominantly African-American neighborhood of Portrero Hill, a San Francisco neighborhood known for a decent amount of sunshine for the Bay Area, solid views of the Bay and the city skyline, a neighborhood that became, quote unquote, gentrified in the 90s. In the 1940s, four public housing projects were built there as World War II wound down and the Simpsons lived in one of these projects. And shit was rough in Portrero Hill. Crime and street gangs became a prevalent or became prevalent in the area in the late 50s and 60s. A lot of artists and members of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community began to move into Potrero Hill, drawn by its location and affordable rent. This melting pot neighborhood is the backdrop for OJ's childhood. Do a YouTube search of the neighborhood right now. Easy to see that the neighborhood is still pretty impoverished in many sections to this day. Orenthal is the uh, third of four kids of Eunice Durden, who is a hospital administrator, and Jimmy Lee Simpson, who is a chef, bank custodian, and for a time, a door-to-door knife salesman. O.J. spent a fair amount of his youth accompanying Jimmy door-to-door across Central California selling knives until his father would go to prison for using one on a potential customer in Sacramento in 1958. Jimmy would be given a public defender, would spend 35 years in prison for a knife double homicide, and Orenthal was determined to never follow follow in his father's footsteps. As a young child, he learned that if you ever end up stabbing the fuck out of a couple people, you got to hire a good attorney or multiple attorneys if you don't want to go to prison. Uh, O.J.'s dad did not sell knives. Uh, That would be a weird, fantastic detail to the story. He didn't spend much time with O.J. either. O.J. would be raised primarily by his mother, Eunice. She'd be his rock until her death in 2001. O.J.'s father would be around, but didn't spend a lot of time in the home. His parents would separate when O.J. was five for reasons, good reasons, that will be made clear in just a few moments. Simpson ran with some local gangs when he was a kid, got into a fair amount of fights as he grew up in the Portrero Hill Projects. But for the area, he did have a pretty solid home life thanks to his mother. His mom, Eunice, kept O.J. away from a neighborhood cycle of violence, crime, and imprisonment uh, uh, for a while. She, She did that when he was young. She did her best. A longtime friend of O.J.'s named John Greenberg would later recall the oasis of normalcy Eunice had worked so hard to create for the Simpson family, saying, There were always three meals on the table. The house was kept up, and he always had a mother at home he could go to. When Simpsons got into trouble, it was his mother who helped straighten him out. And Greenberg continued, It would have been very easy for him to get into a lot of trouble around here, but he had the wherewithal and the mind to listen to people with good advice, namely his mother. Apparently, Orenthal was not listening when she advised him not to beat the shit out of his wife on a regular basis when he got older or stab people. But again, she did her best. At OJ's nine seventy five Hall of Fame NFL acceptance speech many years later, he lamented about his mother saying, What do you say about the most important person in your life? I'm just glad she's here today. My mother. I mean, you just don't know what it is to be eight years old and have all your friends think that you have the best mother in the neighborhood. He also said, I remember when I was about nine years old, my mother worked all her life and she took the whole family on vacation to visit her sister in Las Vegas. And she had two weeks off. She worked a graveyard shift in San Francisco General Hospital for 30 something years. And while we were down there about five days into the vacation, I had to play in my first Little League baseball game and I was moping around and she noticed how sad I was. And I don't know, she drove me 700 miles in the middle of this vacation. She took me 700 miles back to San Francisco so I wouldn't miss my first Little League game. I know I wouldn't be here now if it wasn't for my mother's prayers. So strange to me for someone to value their mother so much, to appreciate a woman so much, have a woman be the most important person in his life and then be so abusive to another woman the mother of his children his wife at the same time he's giving this speech and and I know that you know he was found innocent obviously at the litiga- you know the, the criminal trial he, he was you know convicted with spousal abuse so when i mention him being a, a domestic violence person there's no doubt about that he absolutely uh, beat women In 1952, O.J.'s father, Jimmy Lee Simpson, separated from Eunice, but would remain in the neighborhood and have some presence in the life of O.J. and his three siblings, brother Melvin and sisters Carmelita and Shirley. Brother Melvin, a year older than O.J., would for sure kill a woman in 2005, by the way. It was an accident, but still, what are the odds of that? He was driving a San Francisco airport shuttle when he ran into a concrete support column. They think he fell asleep. And then a 57-year-old Phoenix woman was thrown from the transport van and died instantly. Six other people also injured. Again, just weird, random detail. Uh, Back to O.J.'s Pro Football Hall of Fame speech. O.J. had this to say about his dad. He said, my dad, Jimmy, what do you say about your dad, you know? There are people who are raised in broken homes. Even though my dad didn't live under the same roof as us during most of my youth, he was always there, Dad. He was always there. I always had a father. I love you for it. O.J.'s relationship with his dad was a lot more complicated than he made it seem in that speech. Orenthal's father, Jimmy Lee Simpson, had lived a secret life for quite some time. He was, a, he was a gay man when it was a lot harder to be openly gay than it is now, even in San Francisco, especially if you were a black man. Jimmy became a well-known drag queen in the San Francisco Bay Area, and O.J. reportedly was incredibly ashamed of his father's sexuality. Jimmy would later die of AIDS during San Francisco's AIDS epidemic, not long after his Hall of Fame speech on June 9, 1986. Having an openly gay father did not prevent OJ from becoming aggressively homophobic. To illustrate this, there was an alleged incident during New Year's Eve, 1989, when according to a friend of Simpson's, OJ freaked out at Nicole for allowing their son to simply sit next to an openly gay man at a restaurant. This friend found out the next day that Simpson apparently beat the shit out of Nicole the previous night over this incident. Again, allegedly, one of the many, many, many times he allegedly would beat Nicole. Clearly, uh, dude probably had some shame and anger issues around dad. Early in OG's childhood, no one would have predicted future athletic greatness. Simpson developed rickets. Ricketts uh, that skeletal disorder we learned about in the Joseph Fritzl suck that's caused by a lack of vitamin D, calcium or phosphate. Wore, wore braces on his legs until the age of five, giving him a bow-legged stance and apparently superhuman fucking strength. Maybe that's how you get a really fast kid, make him overcome rickets. Uh, not a lot of kids growing up in nice neighborhoods full of plenty of money getting the cases of rickets. According to a handful of accounts, as an infant, OJ's legs were so bowed and misshaped that his grandma actually took the curtain rods uh, down each night to brace his legs while he slept. She would also allegedly tie his high tops on backwards to desperately straighten, try and straighten his feet. I don't know about the high tops thing; Maybe that's myth, but maybe the curtain rods, man, not, not a lot of affluent families tying curtain rods to baby's legs to counteract rickets. That is some poor people shit. Uh, By 1960, now 13-year-old O.J. no longer in need of curtain rods for his little ricket legs. His ricket legs had grown big and strong and straight, kind of. So at his head. He'd grown a big old head that would lead to a very shitty nickname. Uh, O.J. was a tough, scrappy street kid in 1960, even joined a gang, a gang called the Persian Warriors. That's a fucking dope gang name, by the way. Uh, Way way better than the nickname I'm about to reveal for him. The Persian Warriors ran out of the Portrero Hill slums, and according to a few of O.J.'s early friends, this gang nicknamed Simpson Waterhead because he was born with a way larger than normal head which he has, still has find a picture of oj anywhere he has a fucking massive head if you may, i'm not kidding if you made a bobblehead figure of oj you would not have to increase the existing head to torso kind of ratio of size there just do just do it as is and he's naturally a bobblehead poor little dude gets past his ricket legs now he's called waterhead Which is such a terrible nickname. If you don't know, Waterhead is also slang for someone uh, developmentally disabled who has a large head. Essentially, uh, Waterhead was the equivalent of the derogatory term retard. Basically, his nickname was retard, which, you know, less than ideal. The first time old Waterhead ever went to jail was when he was running with the Persian warriors. The details on the crime sketchy seems to have been something like some theft of some beer. Some some youth shit. After getting released from a youth center in California after one of his youth arrests for some type of petty theft crime, OJ was required to have adult supervision every afternoon. To help OJ, his grandma figured out a way for Simpson to become the manager of the junior high football team. She had no idea this decision would lead to one of the greatest NFL running back careers of all time. After about three days watching other players, OJ felt like he was he was better than those who were playing, wanted to give it a go. Trouble was, <laughs> I'm not making this up, the team did not have a helmet big enough to fit his giant melon. Yeah. <laughs> you know the Persian warriors who he was still running with had a fucking field day with that. Uh, the legend goes that some of his warrior buddies located the helmet large enough for Waterhead. He was given a crack at making the team. And then after pounding the shit out of his teammates for a week in practice, the other boys learned real quick they should not be calling him Waterhead. Uh, they tabbed the strong and speedy Orenthal with a, with a new nickname using his initials OJ, Orenthal James. The nickname The Juice came out of that, as in O.J. for orange juice. You know, that's how The Juice uh, became his nickname. The following year, 1961, O.J. would be a freshman at the public high school Galileo Academy of Science and Technology. O.J., someone who was never a good student, earned a C-minus average, would barely graduate, but he would dominate on the field. In 1962, as a sophomore, O.J. would meet another important influence in his life. One of his first coaches, Jack McCaffrey. McCaffrey had such an influence on O.J. that Simpson would thank him profusely 23 years later when he was being abducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. While O.J. was a tremendous athlete, his Galileo team sucked. In O.J.'s junior year, the Lions lost nine games, one, zero. O.J. did make some lifetime friends on this team, though, like the future driver of his infamous Ford Bronco police chase, Galileo offensive lineman Al A.C. Cowlings. A.C. also introduced A.J. to his first wife, kind of. A.C., was dating 16-year-old Galileo High School sophomore Marguerite Whitley. And when Collins and his girlfriend were having issues as a couple, A.C. asked O.J. to talk to her. And O.J. talked so well to her, he stole A.C.'s girlfriend. <laughs> Collins was reportedly enraged, but he eventually cooled off, Sucked by Simpson's side. Callins would actually follow Simpson to the City College of San Francisco and then on to USC, where they played football together. And Whitley and O.J. would date the rest of the time they were in high school and beyond. O.J.'s senior year, his team went 5-3. and three. Including upsetting the favored St. Ignatius high school team, O.J. almost single-handedly won that game, scoring all four of his team's touchdowns to help beat St. Ignatius, the defending city champion, 31-28. That's about as dominant as one player can be in a football team. Orenthal would also participate in track and baseball at Galileo and then graduate in 1965. Despite being recruited by several top universities, Simpson's grades did not qualify him for a four-year college. And from 1965 to 1966, he attended the City College of San Francisco a member of the California Community College System. They had a football team. Simpson played on both sides of the field. On offense, he was a starting running back. And on defense, he was one of the starting defensive backs. And he was a fucking monster. Cutting and slashing through defenders with ease. So hard not to constantly say things like that. OJ broke junior college records with 26 touchdowns and an obscene 9.9 average yards per carry his first year. For non-football fans, that stat is insane. You have four downs in American football to get a first down and keep possession of the ball as you try to score a touchdown or field goal on offense. OJ averaged a first down every time he touched the ball. The only thing better than that would be to score a touchdown every time you got the ball, which only happens if you discover a cheat code on a video game. He was the closest thing to a cheat code in a real life football game. On June 24th, 1967, at the age of 19, Simpson marries his high school sweetheart, Marguerite L. Whitley. The forgotten first wife they'd spend over a decade together. They'd also have three children. Daughter, Arnell L. Simpson, born in 68. Son, Jason L. Simpson, born in 1970. And daughter, Aaron L. Simpson, loved L nicknames, uh, middle name, excuse me, born in 1977. Now back to 1967. That fall, Simpson got an athletic scholarship to attend the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. OJ wanted to play at USC because it was a football powerhouse and, as he would put it, a place where I can learn which fork to use for dinner. I actually still internally panic when there's more than one fork put down in front of me. Uh, You know, I've just, Lindsay just finally told me, you go outside in, salad fork to the left, meal fork by the plate. Uh, I had to Google that even though she told me. Once you start adding multiple knives and spoons and and other shit, I don't even, I don't know. I get confused. Uh, I did figure out that I'm I'm pretty sure what you can do is you can always grab the sharpest knife in front of you and then stare menacingly at other diners and use that knife to point at them. And then if I remember correctly, you'd eat however the fuck you want and no one bothers you. Uh, OJ struggled at USC for about a day, then dominated. In his first practice, according to USC head coach John McKay, he fumbled and was hesitant. But by the time the season began, back to complete domination. In his first year of NCAA Division I football, OJ ran the ball 291 times for a nation-leading 1,543 yards, 13 touchdowns, and 11 games. He was an All-American, close runner-up for the Heisman, led the Trojans to the conference championship, a lot of the time as one of the greatest football games in college football history. The game pitted O.J. and his USC Trojans against their Pac-8, now Pac-12 rivals UCLA. And the man who just barely beat out O.J. for the Heisman Trophy that year, UCLA quarterback, the great Gary Beeman. For you non-football fans, Gary Beeman is arguably the greatest quarterback in NFL history, easily top four. He's on the Rushmore of NFL quarterbacks, Brady, Montana, Manning, Beeman. If people around you are talking about football and you want to at least come across like you casually understand the game, just reference number 113. That was Gary's number when he played for the Kansas City Thunder. You can talk about the Bevan Bomb. Dude had a cannon for an arm. 1971, he would throw for over 85,000 yards and 91 touchdowns. He threw a then record 250-yard touchdown pass that season in an overtime victory against the Houston Blackhawks. He won the Cy Young. He won the Masters Green Jacket that year. Not bad for a welterweight. And uh, as actual football fans know, are people familiar with just American professional sports just on fucking any level at all? That was complete nonsense. Uh, Beeman was drafted by the Rams, traded to the Redskins, rode the bench for two seasons, rode the bench a year in Denver, went on to kill it in the Southern California real estate game. So don't feel sorry for the Beeps. In this big USC versus UCLA victory bell rivalry game, USC was down by six points in the fourth quarter with under 11 minutes to play on their own 36-yard line. USC backup quarterback Toby Page called an audible on third and seven, handed the ball to OJ, not normally good to run the ball on third and seven. OJ runs for 64 yards for a game-tying touchdown. The extra point provided a 21-20 lead that would go on to be the final score. OJ was the hero. His touchdown run has been referred to by some as one of the best runs ever in the history of college football. This puts OJ on the front page of the paper nationwide. Talk of the town, as they'd say. Uh, Maybe not, first, first, uh, front page of the sports page nationwide. Let me clarify that. Still, still a big deal. Uh, Front page of the paper overall in LA. The talk of the town, uh, less than a year prior, you know, he's a junior college running back living in some San Francisco projects. Now Now he's killing it on a national level. He starts taking acting lessons. Makes a cameo in the popular fictionalized LAPD TV show, Dragnet. The juice becoming a big deal. As soon as his, uh, soon his ego will match the size of a giant head. Then on January 1st, 1968, in front of nearly 103,000 people at the game, OJ scored the only two touchdowns uh, and became Rose Bowl MVP. Huge deal in college football. His team finished ranked number one in the final Associated Press and coaches polls that season, ended the year with a 10-1 record. OJ ran for over 1,500 yards, 13 touchdowns again, 11 games, 23 years old, people already saying he's one of the greatest running backs that ever lived, just getting started. Well, OJ didn't win the coveted Heisman by a small margin in 1967, he did win the Walter Camp Award, another award for, uh, you know, one of the best players in college football. Six foot two, 212 pounds, his combination of running speed and size made him a rare athlete. Not huge by today's standards. A lot of running backs now hover on 230 pounds and are just as fast or faster with modern training techniques. But dude could run the 100-yard dash in just under 10 seconds. 100-meter dash, just over 10 seconds. Fucking grease lightning. NFL general managers and coaches were tripping over themselves to draft this guy, but he had one year of college left back when college athletes tended to spend multiple years in college. In Simpson's senior year at USC, 1968, more dominance, ran for almost 1,900 yards now, 23 touchdowns in 11 games. Over 2,000 all-purpose yards lead the Trojans to another nine-win season. USC again ranked number one in the nation going into the Rose Bowl. This time in the Rose Bowl, OJ and the Trojans did lose to the Buckeyes. Fucking Buckeyes! Really fighting, yelling OH right now because my wife is from Ohio. While the Trojans lost, Simpson had a great individual game running for 171 yards. That's a lot, including an 80-yard touchdown run. That's a, that's a great run. Simpson's season was so good. In February 1969, Sport Magazine named O.J. Man of the Year, proclaiming most experts are rating O.J. Simpson as the greatest running back in the history of college football. And yes, I did say Sport Magazine, not Sports Illustrated. Back in the 60s, the biggest magazine in the world of American athletics was simply called Sport. Uh, It lasted until 2000, after its popularity faded dramatically in the 70s. I just, I love the title. I love how simple it is. Very caveman. Sport. What are you reading? I'm reading Sport. It's like calling a news magazine just news. Or any kind of like adult, you know, picture magazine porn. Just very direct and simple. What are you reading? News. Got anything else lying around I could read? Yes. I got porn. Sport. Car, fashion, travel, food, movie. I like sport, car, food, porn. Wife-like, fashion, travel, movie. Maybe porn, too. Uh, OJ also won the famous Heisman on 68. The illustrious Heisman, awarded 81 times. Never before nor since has the voting margin been as great as it was for OJ. Won it in an unprecedented landslide. Far and away the best college football player in America. 21-year-old OJ's 20-year-old wife, Marguerite, Also have their first child in 68, daughter Arnell. And OJ lands a few more small acting roles, such as, ironically, playing a prison guard. In the name of the game, one of the 1968 most popular TV shows, a show that gave a young Steven Spielberg one of his first uh, directorial opportunities, by the way. After the 1968-69 season, Simpson indeed becomes the first person in the NFL draft, first person chosen, picked by the Buffalo Bills, the lowly Bills. Terrible team, but the money was good. It would be record-breaking money for Simpson. The owner of the Buffalo Bills, Ralph Wilson, said of Simpson's deal, Simpson will be getting more money than any rookie has been paid since the merger between the American and National Leagues, and Buffalo will be getting what it feels is an outstanding football player who one day may take a place among the great running backs of this game. Simpson was the Buffalo Bills' top priority, and his contract earned O.J. a bonus that made him rich. Simpson's contract was for four years, presumed to be in the ballpark of $350,000, which sounds terrible now, but a lot of money in the 1960s. That'd be over $2 million today. Still way lower than what uh, most NFL players make now, but a ton by 1960s professional athlete standards. Despite paying Simpson so much money, the Bills used him sparingly in his first three years. In his rookie season in 69, OJ would touch the ball about 15 or 16 times a game. Bills won only four out of 14 games. Simpson finished his rookie year with 697 rushing yards, total of five touchdowns in the 13 games that he played in. Despite the low numbers, Simpson was selected in his first Pro Bowl team. He and his wife split time between New York and L.A., and O.J. continued to land a few small TV roles. O.J.'s second year in the NFL in 1970 produced even lower numbers. O.J. played only eight games due to injury, averaged only 61 yards in those games. He would run for under 500 yards, not be selected for the Pro Bowl. He did have a few bright spots, including the kickoff that, you know, he's returned. he returned 95 yards for a touchdown. O.J.'s Bills had a terrible season, won only three games. People are starting to wonder now if Simpson was a bust. In his personal life, O.J. and Marguerite celebrated the birth of their second child, Jason, in April of 1970. Let's get away from sports stats a bit further. Talk about O.J.'s first marriage just a tiny bit more. Until this week, I don't remember knowing that O.J. was even married before Nicole. Marguerite has been described as shy and private, given very, very, very few interviews over the years. She was an incredibly beautiful woman, in my opinion, as attractive or more so than Nicole was. Uh, Nicole was known to be beautiful. She's still alive, possibly remarried to a furniture salesman, according to the internet, definitely doing her best to stay out of the spotlight. OJ would claim it was fame that destroyed his marriage to Marguerite. She hated being recognized in public. There might have been more to it than that. She was once interviewed by Barbara Walters uh, for 2020, 1995, after the murder of OJ's second wife. And she claimed that while OJ was not faithful to her, he was notoriously unfaithful, actually, also, not abusive. She said if OJ had hit her, he would have got, quote, a frying pan upside his head. There was just no way that I would allow that to happen to me. Maybe true, but I don't buy it. A month following this interview, in February 1995, a retired LAPD officer named Jim King spoke to Inside Edition about a domestic violence call at the Simpson home in West LA during the mid 70s, saying Marguerite indicated that OJ had punched her, kicked her, choked her, had forced her to the ground. He never denied touching Marguerite. To the contrary, he said he should have not touched her. So you can decide for yourself who to believe. I will also add that after the death of Nicole, numerous LAPD officers came forward reporting that they've been called out to the Simpson home many, many, many times for domestic violence issues. Charges almost never filed. So while there is no, you know, record, no arrest record of OJ beating Marguerite, that does not mean he didn't do that. And there really isn't much uh, else known about Marguerite. Very little has ever been written about her. And you get the feeling that's kind of the way she wants it. In one old picture of OJ and Marguerite, OJ has a, has a decent size afro. And holy shit, was that not a good look at him. Especially accompanied by tight ass early 70s uh, polyester pants and a tight button up shirt. It looked like someone photoshopped his head to be twice as big as a head should be. Like I have a big head, but goddamn. The horrible waterhead nickname makes so much more sense to me. The more I look at these old pictures. Uh, I get why he started keeping his fro nice and tight for the rest of his life. No acting roles for OJ in 1970. Perhaps his interest was uh, fading as his on-field star power also fading. 1971 NFL season would be OJ's best so far, but still not a great one. Still underperforming based on expectations. Runs for over 700 yards. uh, For the third year in a row, scores five touchdowns. Bills win only one game. No acting roles, fame meter continuing to drop along with his football stardom meter. As you might guess, OJ not super happy about his situation in Buffalo, but new head coach shows up, changes everything, helps launch OJ to new fame heights. For the 1972 NFL season, Lou Saban becomes head coach of the Buffalo Bills, centers the Bills offense around OJ, starts to give him the ball more than 30 times a game. The team still only wins four games, ties one. Ties another out of 14, you know, but O.J. finally gets to show what he can do on the NFL field. He runs for 292 times, 14 games, leads the NFL with over 1,200 rushing yards, named to the Pro Bowl again, for the first time named to the first-team All-Pro squad, best of the best, resumes his fledgling acting career, making an appearance in the TV series Cades County, playing someone who murders an art collector. Nice. And then 1973 would be huge for O.J. Some football experts believe that 73... Uh, in 73, OJ had the best season, uh, best season a running back has ever had statistically in the NFL, like fuck like ever to this day. Others say OJ's 1975 season was even better. Both seasons make virtually every list of top five best seasons for an NFL running back again to this day. Dude dominated in 73 uh, in the NFL like he dominated college football in 1968. The juice let fucking loose. Became the first player to run for more than 2,000 yards in a season. Gained 2,003 yards on the ground. He will forever be the only player to ever rush for 2,000 yards in a 14-game season. It was changed to 16 games in 78. O.J.'s 143.1 rushing yards per game, still an NFL record. O.J. also had three games in the 73 season with over 200 yards rushing in the game. That's nuts. That's almost single-handedly taking over an NFL game. Only one player, another uh, NFL great named Earl Campbell, had four such games in 1984, would ever have more. To go with his record-breaking rushing yards, he also scored 12 touchdowns, ran for a career-high six yards per carry. Few runners will ever rush for over five yards per carry by uh, by the end of a season. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott of the Dallas Cowboys led the NFL in rushing last year, averaged 4.7 yards a game for perspective. Simpson was easily named the 1973's NFL or the 1973 NFL's Most Valuable Player MVP, elected to the Pro Bowl. All-pro team, first team again, Orenthal James Simpson, kid from the projects, known as Waterhead, now one of the most famous athletes in America. The Buffalo Bills even had a winning season, go 9-5, end up second in the AFC, AFC East. Uh, OJ's rise in football fame makes it easier to get acting gigs. He appears on Lucille Balls, here's Lucy. Doesn't even play a prison guard or a murderer. He also appears on Owen Marshall, counselor at law, which sounds like some shit I made up, but was a real show. He even appeared in his first film, a movie called Why? He plays Bud professional football player who has issues uh, with his conservative father. It was a film no one saw. It was a film commissioned by Technicolor as an experiment in how to transfer video to film, but still, still it was a movie and he was in it. In 1974, OJ uh, went from over 140 rushing yards a game to just over 80 from 12 touchdowns, to only three. However, still rushed for over a thousand yards, still recognized as an elite running back, selected the Pro Bowl for a fourth time, put on the NFL All-Pro team for a third straight year. The Bills had their second straight winning season Again, ranking second AFC East. Nine wins, five losses. This time, they do make the playoffs. Uh, It was OJ's first time in the NFL playoffs. It would also be his last. The Bills would lose in the first round to the eventual NFL champion, Pittsburgh Steelers, 32-14, but OJ did score the Bills' only two touchdowns. Also received parts in two Hollywood films that year. Appeared in The Klansman, which starred Lee Marvin. In The Klansman, OJ plays Garth, friend of a man accused by the Ku Klux Klan of raping a white woman. The movie was a huge box office flop, panned by critics, but it was a real movie. O.J. was on the big screen. Also appeared in a small role, playing a security officer in The Towering Inferno, starred Paul Newman and Steve McQueen. Huge film, dominated, uh, uh, the the awards uh, won, uh, it was nominated for eight Oscars, highest grossing film of 1974. So O.J.'s acting is now getting a lot of eyeballs on it. Juice is killing life. Uh, That's accidental. accidental. Uh, 1975, O.J., takes zero film and television jobs, and has either the second best or the best season ever for a running back, according to some people in the NFL. Uh, Despite not showing up on any TV show, Simpson is all over the small screen. He lands numerous endorsement deals in 75. He's extremely likable, charismatic. This is what made his case so exceptional. America fucking loved the juice. In 1975, he became the face of a huge Hertz rental car ad campaign that would last all the way into the early 90s. To give an idea of how big this campaign was, how prevalent he was on television, Think about Flo from the progressive commercials. If you don't know who I'm talking about right now, you apparently haven't watched any television since around 2007. Flo is the bubbly brunette character with the bright red lipstick, always wearing a white uniform, always pitching progressive. Now imagine if the actress playing Flo, also the biggest star in America's favorite college sport, also the biggest star in America's most popular professional sport, and in movies and in sitcoms. That's how popular O.J. was, household name. Simpson was a star for Hertz, depicted in their commercials running through airports, serving as the embodiment of speed. Simpson himself would later estimate that his Hertz commercials raised his recognition rate among random people he'd meet on the street in the United States from 30% to over 90%. Almost everybody knew who this dude was. 1975, O.J. led the National Football League with over 1,800 rushing yards, over 2,200 yards overall, career-high 16 rushing touchdowns, NFL record at the time, 23 total touchdowns. Simpsons, 129.8 yards per game in 1975. Rushing-wise, still fifth highest NFL history. And in 1976, O.J. returns to acting, playing an Interpol agent in another flop, The Cassandra Crossing, starring starring Sophia Loren, Martin Sheen. The film uh, literally booed and hissed at by film critics at a preview screening. Richard uh, Edner of the New York Times called the film uh, profoundly, offensively stupid. It makes me laugh so hard to think about pretentious film critics literally booing and hissing. I just love that people actually did that at a movie screen. Boo! Hiss! Hiss! I don't like it. Boo! Hiss! We get it. You self-serious fuck. You don't like it. Just write your bad review and shove your hisses up your silly little ass. Uh, OJ also appeared in Killer Force, aka the Diamond Mercenary, starring Telly Savalas, Peter Fonda, Christopher Lee. O.J.'s biggest role in a proper film, playing a member of a diamond-stealing gang, B-movie for sure, but top five billing for O.J. Now 29-year-old Simpson's 1976 NFL season was another huge year for him. It was his uh, final truly great year statistically. NFL running backs tend to generally not fare too well as they get close and past the age of 30. Too many hard hits. Simpson led the NFL in rushing for the fourth time in five years, with over 1,500 yards on 290 carries in 14 games. Four times in five years is insane. While Jim Brown led the NFL in rushing eight times, between 57 and 65, uh, since OJ entered the league, only Eric Dickerson, Emmitt Smith, and Barry Sanders have also led the league four times. Emmitt Smith, the only other one to do it four to five years. Domination. Simpson scored eight touchdowns on the ground, caught another one for a total of nine scores. Third Simpson of, uh, season of Simpson's career that he would average over 100 yards a game. A rare feat for a running back to do once in a season, uh, even today. Simpson also had the best game of his career during the Thanksgiving game against the Detroit Lions. He amassed a then-record 273 yards on 29 carries, two touchdowns. Still the sixth highest number in pro football history for a single game. In 1977, not a huge football year for Simpson, huge year for our tale today. In the summer of 77, 30-year-old OJ meets future second wife, future murder victim, Nicole Brown. While she's working as a, I just turned 18 years old a few weeks ago, waitress at a private Beverly Hills club called The Daisy. Although still married to Marguerite, Simpson began secretly dating the just-graduated-from-high-school Brown. Uh, Simpson said in an interview that he and his first wife weren't officially divorced when he uh, met Nicole, but that the night before O.J. and Nicole met, he and Marguerite had agreed to a separation. Maybe true. Maybe convenient. But maybe O.J. just trying to look good. When O.J. met Nicole, Marguerite was pregnant with the couple's third child, daughter Erin, born on September 24th. Simpson's 77 season with the Bills would be his last in the cold-ass outdoor games of upstate New York. Uh, OJ started out strong in 77, averaging almost 80 yards a game, but he would play in only seven games due to injury. going to have knee surgery later in the year. And then Simpson would be traded to his hometown team, the San Francisco 49ers. 1977, also a breakout year for OJ's film career. He scored a role in the wildly popular, critically acclaimed TV miniseries, Roots. Also starred in a made-for-TV movie called A Killing Affair, playing a homicide detective who has an affair with his white detective partner. What was noteworthy is that this interracial relationship garnered almost zero controversy during a time when interracial romance, especially on the on the, on the screen, not wildly accepted in a still overtly racist society. That's how beloved OJ was. He wasn't seen by generally still pretty racist America as a black man. He was the juice. He transcended skin color. He was a kick-ass running back who's also really funny, well-spoken and polite and handsome and all those Hertz commercials. If you were super racist as a white dude, but your daughter had to marry a black man, there was a good chance you're gonna pick O.J. If not O.J., maybe Michael Jackson, who had just turned 18 and hadn't yet transformed into a weird, creepy-as-fuck mannequin person, who, if not a pedophile, certainly not someone who should be your go-to choice for babysitting. In 77, O.J. also starred alongside Elliot Gould and James Brolin as an astronaut in Capricorn One, a movie about NASA, faking a Mars landing. Illuminati! The whole Hollywood thing starting to look real promising for OJ. 1978, clear that Simpson's football career is winding down. The Niners, uh, they're terrible. They score the lowest amount of points in the league that year, set an NFL record with 63 turnovers. OJ plays in only 10 games, rushes for under under 600 yards, scores only one rushing touchdown, fumbles five times, ran for a career low of 3.7 yards per carry, and his next season wouldn't be any better. But he was rich, Making tons of Hertz money, dating a hot blonde 18-year-old Beverly Hills waitress. March of 79, OJ and Marguerite finalized their divorce. Now OJ's free to openly date Nicole, and he does. And then just five months later, tragedy strikes. OJ and Marguerite's two-year-old daughter, Erin Lashone Simpson, drowns in the family swimming pool, less than a month after her second birthday. Paramedics responded to a call at OJ's home. When they arrive, they find the little toddler lay- laying lifeless beside the pool, the cause of her death would be listed as respiratory failure. We do not have any additional details other than no wrongful death or negligence charges were filed against OJ or Marguerite, despite the two year old wandering into the pool alone. Was there a locking gate surrounding the pool that somebody forgot to lock? Did someone leave a slider unlocked? Was it uh, someone OJ? Was it someone Marguerite, a sibling? Was OJ supposed to be watched for that day, but he was too busy fucking around with his new girlfriend? We don't know. Her death could have been entirely accidental or it could have been somebody's fault. As far as football, 1979, Simpsons last season in the National Football League. Plays in 13 games, again for the Niners. Starts in only eight. The juice not on the loose. The juice is contained. Juice is in the bottle. Cap is on fucking tight. OJ would carry the ball under 10 times a game, finish with the lowest output of his career, 460 yards, and the Niners win only two games. In 11 seasons in the NFL, OJ played for a winning team only three times, played in only one playoff game. However, finished his career with over 11,000 career yards rushing, which when he retired was the second most in NFL history behind the legendary Jim Brown. OJ still ranks 21st all-time in career rushing rushing yards 40 years after retiring, despite playing, you know, when they played two less games a season. Simpson also still 12th all-time in average rushing yards per game in a career, which ended up at 83.2 yards a game over 135 games played. So again, OJ wasn't just a good football player, one of the best of all time. When he retired, he was arguably the greatest running back in the history of the NFL, at least in the conversation with Jim Brown. And thanks to tons of Hertz commercials and cameos on several TV shows and a few films, wildly famous, wildly popular with both white and black America. With his football career now behind him, he devotes even more time to acting, which would only increase his fame. In 1979, he starred in a a British thriller with 45-year-old bombshell Sophia Loren, one of the most beautiful women of all time, in my opinion. Uh, James Coburn called Firepower. He gets third billing this time. He's on the official film poster now. The movie was panned by critics, but still a movie and OJ's still one of its stars. Also in 79, O.J. starts up his own film production company, Orenthal Productions, which dealt strictly in made-for-TV movies where people get stabbed. They made 73 stab movies. Uh, no, they didn't. They made uh, several TV movies, though. The first of five made-for-TV films Simpson would make was called Goldie and the Boxer. Also came out in 1979. OJ would be the executive producer on the film as well as a star in, in the critically acclaimed, it was not critically acclaimed, uh, in the movie, OJ played a man named Joe Gallagher, who is an unknown boxer who gets spurred on to fight for the title again by the 10 year old daughter of deceased, of a deceased boxing champ, uh, little Goldie. The movie was panned by critics, but rated well enough for NBC when it debuted on December 30 to land a sequel on NBC called Goldie and the Boxer Go to Hollywood. In, Goldie and the boxer go to Hollywood. Goldie turns 16 and the boxer, again played by OJ, starts to have a sexual relationship with her. Then just a few months into the romance, Goldie catches the boxer cheating on her over and over again. When she finally confronts him and threatens to leave, he beats the ever-loving shit out of her. Eventually, concerned family and friends encourage Goldie to call the police. When she does, charges are not filed. This happens time and time again. Finally, Goldie divorces the boxer, strikes out on her own, until one day the boxer, in a fit of jealous rage, stabs Goldie and John Roldman her friend impossible, lover to death in front of Goldie's Brentwood condo. And then the boxer gets away with it through some legal tomfoolery. Critics found the film wildly distasteful, but it rated well enough for a third film to be greenlit. And the trilogy was completed with the next uh, uh, release of, now that Goldie's dead, the boxer finally goes to prison for stealing some of his old championship belts back from a collector. Critics felt the title was lengthy, but most were happy that the boxer's character finally got some goddamn justice. And of course, that's not true. But the plot of the, uh, that's not true about the plot of the second movie or the existence of the third. Two movies were made. In 1980, with O.J. retiring from the NFL as a surefire surefire Hall of Famer, his new girlfriend and his acting star and a film production company on the rise, O.J. is living the American dream. Nicole and O.J. get a new place in Beverly Hills. Unlike Marguerite, Nicole loves the spotlight. O.J. and Nicole are often seen together with other celebrities and athletes at high-profile Hollywood parties. Behind the scenes, different story though. While OJ and Marguerite may have had their own domestic violence issues, Nicole and OJ had them for sure. Nicole did not come from OJ's neighborhood. He did not meet her when he didn't have a dollar in his pocket. They didn't grow up together, come from nothing together, experienced the first taste of success together. They had a very different relationship dynamic. Nicole, while well, she was actually born in Germany, grew up in Orange County. She was a SoCal kid. She was a homecoming queen in, in high school who grew up in an upper middle class neighborhood not far from the beach. When she met OJ, he was already a celebrity. He was rich. Famous and much older than her. He was 12 years older, which isn't a huge deal when one person's like 32 and another person's 44, but for sure a huge deal when one person is 30 and another is 18. In that situation, one person is fully an adult. One person is comparatively still a kid in so many ways. And if you disagree, I'm almost certain you're under 30. With rare exception, one person knows who the fuck they are and one person just starting to find out. Nicole wasn't OJ's partner. From the beginning, I think it's pretty fair to assume he viewed her as his possession. In my opinion, when someone in their 30s or older is dating people in their teens, they're generally not looking to be challenged in any way. After Nicole's death, the world would learn that Nicole had survived seven or eight separate occasions of reported domestic violence and, quite likely, several dozens of other incidents that were not reported. More on that a little bit later. In 1980, O.J. was part of only one Hollywood project, a made-for-TV movie he produced, Uh, and starred in, called Detour to Terror. OJ was once again uh, the executive producer on this. Its it's official one-sentence description makes it sound like possibly the greatest movie ever made. A homicidal dune buggy trio terrorizes a busload of Las Vegas-bound tourists with the intent to kidnap one of them. I'm sorry, did you say dune buggies? You say Vegas tourists being terrorized? Holy shit, I'm in. OJ plays the bus driver and even sneaks Nicole onto the bus in a non-speaking cameo role. There's only one user review of this film on imdb.com, and it ends with, if this is the only thing on TV, playing on the TV late at night, run, do not walk away, it's that bad. You know, made for TV movies, they can't all be hits. It didn't matter if Simpson could really act or not, America loved him, And more sweet endorsement money rolls in to go with his nationwide Hertz campaigns, which had to have made him millions. OJ now started cutting commercials for the now almost totally defunct Pioneer Chicken chain, Only two locations remain out of the nearly 300 locations it would possess in the mid-80s. OJ even owned two Pioneer Chicken franchises. And random trivia, one of these restaurants destroyed during the 1992 L.A. riots. They had a great slogan. That's great chicken. No bones about it. And a little ditty. Nothing tastes quite as good as Pioneer. A lot of older Popeye's Chicken locations used to be Pioneer Chicken locations for some random chicken trivia. Check out one of their commercials. I love uh, commercials from the 70s and 80s. Oh, they're so fucking good. This is OJ in a Pioneer Chicken commercial. Ah, summertime. Great for relaxing with friends and enjoying Pioneer's summer fun special. You get eight large pieces of golden Pioneer chicken, mashed Mm. potatoes, gravy, and coleslaw for just $6.99. Shit, yeah. And Pioneer's even got free coupons for Universal Studios Tour. With the biggest discounts, including a free admission. Get out of here, O.J. exciting attractions like Transformers Base Camp, 2010 Space Walk, and much more. Whoa. Of course, Pioneer Chicken Summer Fun Special for $6.99 is a great way to make new friends. Right, fellas? <laughs> Hilarious. Uh- oh, at the end there, there was people dressed up in weird costumes, and he gave them a funny look. But anyway, he he really was good. He was good in comedic roles. Uh, Also a spokesman for Honey Baked Ham, so delicious by the way, uh, the PX Corporation, the Calistoga Water Company's line of Napa Natural Soft Drinks, and even appeared in print ads and commercials for Dingo Cowboy Boots. If you're not walking around in Dingo Cowboy Boots right now, you can go fuck yourself. That's all I've worn in my whole life is Dingo Cowboy Boots. I wear them with shorts. I wear them naked. I wear them to bed. You're not a man if you're not sleeping in your Dingo Cowboy Boots. No, but uh, I never heard of them before. But check out this uh, uh this is a great. This is a great old commercial here. This is O.J. Simpson. Bunch of women around singing looking at him how handsome he is, strutting around in his goddamn cowboy boots. He's walking. Yes, the a dingo man down to his feet. I'm hoping that he will up to me. No, you know you're not hoping that. You don't want to walk up to. I stop him if he walks on by. I'll follow him till I catch his eye. He's in the finest and his sure tall. The dingo Oh, he's walking, yes, indeed, a dingo man down to his feet. I'm hoping that he'll walk up to me. No, you're not hoping that. Dingo Boots, get in step. Get in step, you guys, with some dingo boots. Today's Time sock brought to you by Dingo Boots. The best boots to wear when you're walking away from a double homicide. Fucking dingo. Um, it's not I don't. I don't even know if they're around anymore. Money was flown in. OJ living it up in Hollywood. Social media had been around. The, the dude would have been killing Instagram. I'm guessing, what, 30 million followers at least? 1983, O.J. lands another spot in the limelight, limelight when he becomes one of the commentators on the one of the most popular shows on TV, Monday Night Football. The juice is in the booth. You know they said that at least 10 times. In 1983, Simpson appears in two uh, of the best made-for-TV movies of all time based on titles. He stars in Hambone and Hilly and, even better title, Cocaine and Blue Eyes. How great are those movie names? Fuck yes, I'll watch Cocaine and Blue Eyes. Sold. Actually, I won't. I tried. The whole thing's on uh, YouTube. And I tried to I find one good like, line, and it's it's so bad. It's not even so bad, it's good. It's just fucking boring for a long time. You can, yeah, again, you can watch the entire thing on YouTube if you just have an hour and a half, you don't give a fuck about. Or you can buy the DVD on Amazon. If you have an hour and a half and 20 bucks, you don't give a fuck about. Uh, fast forward a couple years, 1985, February 2nd. Now 25-year-old Nicole, 37-year-old OJ, get married. Former close friend of Nicole, former actress Robin Greer, would later say O.J. made sexual advances torture at their wedding. Classy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, could be just slander, but based on other things you'll hear soon, also not out of his character. 1985 also is the year uh, O.J. is elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Canton, Ohio, on August 3rd. Overwhelmingly selected in his first year of eligibility. In his acceptance speech, he mentioned that coach from high school, Jack McBridge. He says, you know, there are people in your life who teach you things to stay with you. And I can recall the Jack McBride, excuse me, uh, Jack, Jack McBridge, one of those guys who had that effect on me. You know, I have it written down both ways. So fucking who cares? It's, it's McBride or McBridge. It's one letter difference. I'll never forget Jack because he told me, he said, OJ, in this world, there are rules we must all live by. He said, You've got to learn that if you're going to be successful in this world, you're going to have to learn to accept responsibilities for your actions. You tried to help him, Jack. God knows you tried. If only we would apply that lesson a little more in the coming years. October 17th, 1985, Simpsons have their first child together, OJ's fourth child overall, daughter named Sydney Brooks Simpson. Sydney would go on to defend her father as she grew older, calling him her best friend at one point after the murders. Poor Sydney, just eight when her mother was killed. She managed to stay out of the spotlight despite several tabloids' best efforts to track her down. I do know that she graduated, according to the internet, from Boston University in 2010, hopefully has done well for herself ever since. During the remainder of the 80s, O.J. would continue to work as an internationally known endorser, color, color commentator for professional football, and an actor in several TV shows and movies. Most of his acting roles smaller and forgettable films, but he did land a regular role on one of HBO's or in one of HBO's very first sitcoms, First and Ten. O.J. showed up in season two playing TD Barker, touchdown Barker, uh, Parker, excuse me, <laughs> touchdown Parker, a veteran running back forced to make the transition from player to coach. He played TD the last five seasons of the series. And then Simpson's biggest and arguably most memorable role came in the 1988 Zucker Brothers comedy, The Naked Gun, starring Leslie Nielsen and Priscilla Presley. Huge hit, grossed almost $220 million at the box office on a $65 million budget. Simpson's blundering but lovable character, Nordberg, widely applauded. The character would return with the movie sequels The Naked Gun 2.5, The Smell of Fear in 1991, and Naked Gun 33 and a Third, The Final Insult in 1994 these movies were my uh, intro to OJ Simpson. He was, in my opinion, fucking hilarious in these movies. I went back and watched the hospital scene in the first movie where uh, Nielsen, aka Frank, checks on Norbert after he gets pretty banged up and he sits on his hospital bed and it folds in half with him in it and then folds with his face on his crotch. It's just goofy slapstick, but it's so well-performed. Truly one of my favorite childhood comedies. Nonstop jokes from start to finish. If you ever want to study the density of jokes in a movie, Study the naked gun. It's fucking mind-boggling. Okay. That's enough about OJ's football heroics and TV and film career. Let's talk more about his dark side. Right after a word from our final sponsor. TimeSuck is brought to you today by Movement. Movement, now making more than watches. They also make sunglasses. You shouldn't have to choose between overpriced designer sunglasses and cheap shades. They won't last you through the summer. I just got myself some Movement sunglasses constructed with durable acetate and lightweight materials for the perfect fit, Movement sunglasses started just 60 bucks. No pair priced over $95. They've got hundreds of styles to choose from, whether you're looking for something that's timeless or a statement. And with free shipping and returns, you can try on as many styles as you want. If you want to see the ones I've been wearing recently, check out my Instagram, Dan Kelman's Comedy. I have several pictures of me on vacation and in every picture that I'm wearing sunglasses, I'm wearing some movement sunglasses. If you want to be a uh, sunglass 20s, if you want to be sunglass buddies, I got the Reveler Milky Gray Cobalt. Just 60 bucks after I used my own time suck discount. And they truly have the same qualities as other sunglasses i paid four times that much for in the past. So get 15% off a pair today with free shipping, with free returns by going to movement.com slash timesuck. That's M-V-M-T dot com slash timesuck. See why movement keeps growing. Check out their expanding collection. Go to M-V-M-T, movement.com slash timesuck. Join the movement. Link in today's episode description. Now back to why OJ is for sure a woman beating piece of shit. This is is where a lot of the OJ coverage starts. But before getting here, I just wanted to really spend some decent time illustrating why his fall from grace, his alleged double homicide was such a big deal. If you were a USC fan, an NFL fan, a person who watched an average amount of TV during the 70s, 80s, early 90s, you would have felt like you knew OJ Simpson. He was a celebrity you'd watched for over two decades. And then he's in a Ford Bronco heading down the freeway, accused of stabbing his ex-wife to death and her alleged lover. What the fuck? The closest famous athlete comparison I can come up with today uh, for OJ Simpson is actually former uh, star quarterback Peyton Manning. Similar wholesome image. Not quite the same background. You know, Peyton's dad was also an NFL quarterback, but same, ah, shucks. I'm just I'm just trying to do the right thing and play hard kind of football image. And same comedic abilities. Peyton's really funny in commercials. Uh, what if Peyton had also appeared in a bunch of movies and TV shows, not just playing himself. Imagine if Peyton Manning had become a sitcom regular for like five years. He played some staffer on Veep, and then uh, he'd been in like several Fast and Furious movies and had a large role in one of the Hangover movies, and his wife was an Instagram model, and he had more of a leading man look. Now he's on the news, his brother Eli, driving down the freeway in an Escalade after Peyton possibly stabbed the fuck out of his ex-wife, one of her friends. How big of a trial would that be? And then what if you added some sort of racial tension, like a lot of racial tension, like there was with the OG trial, a black man on trial for the murder of a white woman, Black America, tired of seeing young black men wrongfully incarcerated. Do you understand the stakes of this crime, the social magnitude of this trial? America viewed OJ as so wholesome, mainly because they had no idea that for years behind closed doors, his violence had been building. Nicole Brown Simpson's murder forever changed the way America looked at domestic violence. Prior to the OJ trial, spousal abuse was seen, although perhaps in mostly unspoken terms, as a private matter. But after the trial of O.J. and the amount of abuse that was alleged at his hands, plus the allegations of his stalking, aggressive measures of control, overall violence of her murder, it was made clear that if you suspected domestic violence, you needed to report it. Growing awareness about the pervasive danger of domestic violence, largely because of the O.J. trial, was instrumental to helping getting the Violence Against Women Act passed through Congress in 94. With funding from this act, policymakers began seeking new ways to address domestic violence beyond sending battered women to shelters and giving them restraining orders that were largely ineffective. Advocates now saw the need for comprehensive services to help victims start over and be protected. Nicole's death launched a lot of new studies about domestic violence towards women. We now know, for example, that the biggest red flag regarding homicidal potential is an instance in which an abuser tries to choke off a person's airway. San Diego detective Sylvia Vela says, statistically, we know that once the hands are on the neck, the very next step is homicide. They don't go backwards. That's terrifying. Uh, We also know that nationwide, more than 1,100 women are killed each year in America by intimate partners. According to a 2018 report by the Violence Violence Policy Center uh, that used 2016 FBI data. We also know that domestic violence hotlines receive an average of 20,000 calls a day in the US. According to the National Network to End Domestic Violence. 20,000 a day, that's nuts. Think about how many women don't call. What, 50,000? 100,000, half a million? A lot of Nicole Simpson's own abuse was detailed in a letter she herself had written to OJ as part of their divorce proceedings, a letter she locked away in a safety deposit box uh, as if she knew it might come in handy one day if OJ indeed killed her. During the trial, Simpson's lawyers were quick to dismiss past alleged and proven abuses against Nicole as irrelevant to the case, but that's fucking bullshit. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. I've always loved that quote, a quote attributed to numerous psychologists, and I think it's true. I think someone who was violent towards Nicole numerous times before she was murdered had much better odds of killing her than someone who was not violent towards her. Nicole's writings illustrate that the abuse against her was carried out in many ways. It ranged from Simpson giving her disgusted looks with each pound she gained in her first pregnancy in 1988 to, quote, beating the holy hell out of her a year later. According to Nicole, in one case, when she needed to see a doctor after one of OJ's beatings, the couple told an x-ray lab tech that she fell off a bike. The letter and other documents show that she'd been planning to escape from Simpson for many years. It demonstrated the kind of fear and complications that come with attempting to get away from an abuser, especially one a victim has children with. Not only did defendant verbally abuse, physically abuse, degrade, and humiliate Nicole throughout their relationship, but he stalked and harassed her as well. That's what OJ's prosecutor said in an introduction to the 85 pages of abuse documents entered into court. At least a dozen of Nicole's friends and associates describe an awesome and often gruesome detail more than 50 incidents from the couple's stormy relationship. In a 2014 Dateline interview, Nicole's friend Chris Jenner, yes, the matriarch of the Kardashian clan, said that Nicole told her just weeks before she was killed, "Things are really bad between OJ and I, and he's going to kill me, and he's going to get away with it." How fucking creepy is that quote? He's going to kill me, he's going to get away with it. Said just weeks before. Court documents portrayed Mr. Simpson as a hard-drinking, foul-mouthed man whose jealous rages led to violent encounters that left Mr. Simpson, or Mrs. Simpson, bloodied and cowering. The evidence shows that the defendant was an extremely jealous and possessive man, the prosecutor said, alleging a pattern of behavior, a systematic plan to control her that ultimately resulted in the killing of Mrs. Simpson and her friend, Ron Goldman. In one incident, detailed in the documents released by the prosecutors, Mrs. Simpson is said to have told her mother that OJ was stalking her. I'm scared, her mother, Judith, uh, Juditha Brown, quotes her as having said shortly before she was killed. I go to the gas station, he's there. I go to the payless shoe store, he's there. I'm driving and he's right behind me. Dude, uh, any of you listening, do not fucking do any of that ever. If you're stalking someone like this, guess what? Unless you're trying to prove they've committed some type of crime against you or one that detrimentally affects you, you're just a fucking creep you're doing this because you're jealous and worried that someone who doesn't want to be with you is seeing someone else, you're acting like a fucking psycho. Nothing good will come from this, you sad and or scary fuck of a meat sack. Uh, Nicole Brown m- uh, met OJ as pretty much a child and she spent the other half of her life under his thumb. The marriage lasted seven years, during which the time they had two children, a daughter named Sydney, as we mentioned, born in 1985, a son named Justin, born in 1988. Through, uh, throughout the rocky relationship, Simpson investigated multiple times by police for domestic violence, pleaded no contest to spousal abuse in 1989. This is a uh, uh, now uh, infamous incident. Uh, this happened um, New Year's Eve, 1989. A call to 911 was made from O.J. Simpson's estate located at 360 North Rockingham at 3.58 a.m. The 9-11 dispatcher who answered the call, Sharon Gilbert, had no dialogue with the caller but heard a woman scream and what she believed to be a physical altercation happening in the background. Although she never spoke with whomever made the call, based on what she heard occurring in the background, Gilbert rightly dispatched officers from LAPD's West LA station to respond to the potential incident. When the first officers, Detective John Edwards and his partner officer, Patricia uh, Milus- uh, Miluski, Ugh, Polish, Ugh, uh, they arrived, Nicole started yelling, he's going to kill me, he's going to kill me. Detective Edwards asked Nicole, who is going to kill you? Nicole answered, OJ. The, det- the detective responded, OJ, who? Do you mean the football player? OJ, the football player? And Nicole said, yes, OJ Simpson, the football player. Detective Edwards testified that he observed the following injuries to Nicole's face. She had a cut, approximately one inch, I believe, on her upper left lip. She had a swollen right forehead. I believe her left eye or right eye was starting to blacken. It was swollen. She had some sort of imprint, some sort of swollen mark that you could see on her cheek. I believe that was on the right cheek. She had a hand imprint on her throat on the left side of her throat. Next, Detective Edwards said that she, uh, they asked Nicole to tell him what had happened. He testified that Nicole said OJ had slapped her, hit her with his fist, and kicked her and pulled her, I think pulled her by the hair. Officer Mil- uh, Maluski proceeded to enter the vehicle, sit in the right front seat, and take the crime report from Nicole. During this time, Nicole made a series of spontaneous statements to Detective Edwards and Officer Maluski. Uh, Mal- fucking stupid Polish name! God damn it! Maluski. Ugh. Per Detective Edwards' testimony, she said, you guys never do anything. Something to the effect that you never do anything about him. You come out. You have been out here eight times. You never do anything about him. And she says, I want him arrested. I want my kids back. I want to go in the house. Then Detective Edwards observed Mr. Simpson walking towards me from the house, wearing an open bathroom with a pair of shorts, underwear, and no shoes. Detective Edwards testified that when OJ reached the closed gate, he said, I don't want that woman in my bed anymore. I got two other women. I don't want that woman in my bed anymore. What a fucking asshole. It's like he's bragging to the police about his sexual abilities now, telling the officers he doesn't want his wife in his bed because he has two other women he's fooling around with in the same house he's living with his wife. The move of a cocky dirtbag. The detective testified that he told OJ that Nicole had obvious physical injuries to her face that she said that he had hit her and I could see trauma and open wounds to her and that she wanted him arrested and I was going to have to place him under arrest for spousal battery. Edwards also stated that while he was not sure he believes OJ responded to this statement by saying, I didn't hit her. I just I just pushed her out of the bed. It, right. Yeah, she fucking, she just fell like so many times after I pushed her out. Of the- Detective Edwards once again explained to OJ that due to the injuries to Nicole's face, they had to place him under arrest. Detective then testified that OJ said, you've been out here for eight times before and now you're going to arrest me for this? And then he said, this is a family matter. Wow. This is a family matter. That's all. Just one of the many times he used his superior size and athletic ability to beat the shit out of a small, terrified wife. Just family stuff. You know, it's like taking the kids uh, trick or treating or watching a t-ball game. Ah, this is a dude who is six, 6'1", 212 pounds in his playing days. So usually you get a little heavier after that. He's probably 220, 230. Nicole, 5'5", no more than 120 pounds. Dude had 100 pounds on her and a lot more muscle. And he doesn't think slapping around is doing anything wrong. It's just family shit. The police report continues. Approximately two minutes pass, and OJ Simpson comes back out now, now dressed. He approaches the closed gate, says to Detective Edwards, what makes you so special? Why are you doing this? You guys have been out here eight times before. No one has ever done anything like this before. Detective Edwards explained to OJ that he was going to have to place him under arrest, that the law required me to place him under arrest, and that there was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And then check this shit out. As Edwards begun, begins to explain the situation to his recently arrived supervisor, OJ jumps in his Bentley and just fucking drives off. He says, as I was explaining to the supervisor what had transpired, what we needed to do, I saw a blue Bentley start up, the lights start up, turn on, it went out of the driveway. I was not aware it was there. It went out a driveway onto Rockingham, out another gate, similar to the one I'd been standing in front of, and the vehicle went southbound to Rockingham. OJ and his white Bronco, not the only chase he led police on in his life. When this, when this dude gets caught, he flees. That's a fucking pattern. Detective Edwards and his supervisor, Sergeant Glenn Varner, push, uh, pursue, excuse me, O.J. and his Bentley. But since both men you know, were in squad cars when he exited the property and the dude had a pretty good head start, he just, uh, he fucking gets away. They, they can't find him. Following the fruitless pursuit, upon returning to Rockingham, Detective Edwards testifies that he offered to drive Nicole to an emergency room, get her treated right then and there. She declined, saying she just wanted to be taken back into the house. She wanted to be with her children. Understanding the importance of documenting her injuries via photograph, Edwards testifies that he asked her if she would go to a West LA station and have Polaroid photographs taken of her real quick. She said yes. Those pictures still online today. Very telling. He roughed her fucking face up pretty good. Although it was never mentioned in the police report or any of the documents associated with the incident, uh, Detective Edwards testified that while at the West LA station, Nicole told him that the incident occurred because Nicole was upset that there was two other women living in the house. And then OJ had sex with one of them prior to getting into bed with her that night. If this accusation is true, what kind of fucking megalomaniac? And then a guy who just drives away from the police, like whatever. And he didn't get in trouble for that part. Oh man, just a fucking athlete who's been catered to way too much. His ego's out of control. Think what kind of self-centered sociopath you have to be to be fucking not just two different women who aren't your wife, but you've also brought them to stay in the same house as your wife. And then beat the shit out of your wife because she's mad you just fucked one of them before climbing into bed with her. Brown wouldn't file for divorce until over a year after this incident. She files on February 25th, 1992, citing irreconcilable differences. Yep. Uh, she didn't like being smacked around and humiliated by OJ, and he liked smacking her around and humiliating her. Uh, pretty irreconcilable difference. The divorce would be long and messy. They would seemingly reconcile. then want nothing to do with each other. Then try and be friends. Then date, which I think was more just OJ's pursuit than ways. OJ himself never considered himself fully out of her romantic life. On October 25th, 1993, currently, uh, currently definitely not romantically involved with OJ and living in a Brentwood rental home, Nicole called uh, 9-11 in a panic, saying that her ex-husband was just, well, was outside, excuse me, in a white Bronco, shouting obscenities that he had just knocked down the back door. The call lasted for 15 minutes with OJ at times audibly screaming obscenities while Nicole told police dispatch, he's OJ Simpson. I think you know his record. Just send somebody over. And she said, he always comes back. What a haunting quote that is. He always comes back. Nicole's story is so fucking sad. When officers arrived, Nicole, uh, or excuse me, OJ still there. And according to an official incident report, admitted breaking the door, took full responsibility for its replacement. That's hey, just a family matter, officers. Don't worry about it. Just kicked down Max wife's back door, threatened to kill her, called her a whore and some shit. You know, just family stuff. Come on. The following summer, just five days before her murder, Nicole contacts a shelter for battered women, telling an employee there that she is being stalked, that she's being harassed by O.J. Simpson. She tried so many times to get help. And this motherfucker still would be found not guilty. Get the fuck out of here. June 12th, 1994, the most infamous day of this tale, after all the warnings, after calling the police so many times, after telling her friends and family she worried about OJ killing her and getting away with it, after putting the letter detailing her abuse and fears in a safety deposit box, after calling a domestic violence shelter just a few days before, Nicole Brown Simpson, Ron Goldman, found stabbed to death outside of Nicole's condo in the Brentwood area of at Los Angeles. Now, here's a rundown of the hours leading up to her murder. p.m. after attending her daughter's dance recital, Nicole has dinner with friends and family at the Brentwood Restaurant Mezzaluna, where her friend Ron Goldman worked as a waiter. For the previous few weeks, maybe even a little longer, 35-year-old Nicole, 25-year-old Ron had been spending a lot of time together. While I want to say they were romantically involved, excuse me, there is no concrete proof of that. Ron was a good-looking, charismatic guy whose life consisted of waiting tables, dancing at nightclubs, hitting the gym, playing tennis. He and Nicole had been working out together grabbing coffee together, grabbing dinner together, would go out dancing together. I should add that Ron was straight, had a healthy dating history, and told friends how attractive he thought Nicole was. To me, how how are they not dating? But he didn't seem to tell anyone uh, they were dating. A friend he'd known since kindergarten, Mike Pincus, would say that Ron always told him he was dating someone and he never mentioned Nicole that way, so maybe they were not dating. Or maybe they were dating, but because OJ was an insane fucking psychopath, And super jealous and stalking her, maybe Nicole told Ron not to tell anyone because she was afraid of what OJ would do. Pure conjecture on my part, but those dating situations for sure exist. OJ had also attended the recital, allegedly asked to join Nicole and the family for dinner at Mezzaluna, and Nicole told him no. Probably pissed him off a little bit. Told the guy no, the guy she had just called the domestic violence shelter about a few days back. At 8 p.m., Nicole Brown Simpson and her children leave Mezzaluna, stop for ice cream on the way home. I can picture this all so well in my head right now. I used to go right at some coffee shops around where all of this went down when I lived in LA. 9.15 p.m., one of Nicole Brown Simpson's sisters calls Mezzaluna to say that Nicole's mother had left her glasses at the restaurant. Uh, her friend, Ron Goldman, still working there, volunteers to return the glasses to Nicole's condo. Somewhere between 9 p.m. and 9.30, Brian Cato Kalin, Uh Kalin, excuse me, a friend of OJ and Nicole's who was staying at OJ's guest house goes to McDonald's with OJ for dinner. Oh, but O.J. was fucking seething at, at McDonald's. Quick refresher on Cato, the, the random dude who became famous for a little while only because of the O.J. trial. Before the trial, Cato was a 35-year-old model, not that successful, a uh, casting agent who'd met Nicole in 1992 in Aspen, Colorado on a ski vacation. A month later, Nicole invited Kalen to a party at a Brentwood home on Gretna the Green Way, where he noticed an empty guest house near the pool and asked if he could move in. The rent was $500 a month with a discount based on how much time he would spend watching her young son and daughter. But when Nicole planned to move uh, to a smaller com- condominium on nearby Bundy Drive, Kaylen was going to move with her, taking an inside downstairs room, but OJ didn't like it. Uh, Kaylin would later state that OJ told him it just wouldn't look right that a dude was staying with Nicole when he and Nicole were trying to reconcile, which they weren't. That was just OJ's head. During the trial, Prosecutor Marsha Clark asked Kato, were you and Nicole lovers? No, Kaylin replied, just friends. I don't know. Maybe Nicole really did have just numerous platonic dude friends. Not impossible. OJ offered Cato a better arrangement, stay rent-free in the former football star's larger guest house. That's so weird to me. OJ letting Cato stay at his place rent-free just so a dude is not staying with his ex-wife because he thinks they're reconciling when they're not. OJ was so obsessive and delusional. Also, the condo Nicole moved into located 875 South Bundy Drive. For six years, I lived at 1419 South Saltaire Drive, 0.7 0.7 miles away. The Ralph's grocery store I shopped at just a few blocks away. The last time I gave jogging a go, probably will not happen again. I I, I jogged uh, directly in front of her condo. That was my little, my little route. Had no idea until this week's suck. It was uh, where all of this went down. Had no idea I was so close to such an infamous address. Being where these things happen always makes them feel so much more real to me. Not just words on paper, real lives, real tragedies. Kaylin and OJ return home around 9.45 p.m. OJ's home located at 360 North Rockingham Avenue, just two miles away. If you're driving the speed limit, just six minutes away. I can personally vouch uh, for for there not being a lot of traffic in this neighborhood at that time time of day. Uh, Goldman leaves the restaurant around 9.50 p.m. with a white envelope containing the glasses. And this is about the time the murder happened. The scene was gruesome. Nicole's head nearly cut off in her own condo courtyard. She was murdered in front of her condo in a little walkway where anyone passing by could have seen, you know, the murder happen if they just looked past some foliage. The killer almost certainly, OJ, for for reasons I'll lay out soon, stabbed Nicole four times in the neck before delivering the final devastating throat wound. The four stab wounds in a close set pattern suggest that Nicole Simpson was held in some way and gave little struggle. The medical examiner would later testify. The prosecution asked if an assailant could have knocked out Nicole, attacked Ron, then returned to cut her throat. It is possible, the examiner answered. None of Nicole's smaller stab wounds or head bruises would have been fatal right away. The medical examiner said she was alive at least a minute or so before the last wound was inflicted. He also said that he knew she was lying face down because the blood flowed to the ground rather than into her lungs or esophagus. I would say she died within a few minutes, probably less said the examiner, who added that the entire attack probably lasted only a few minutes, as indicated by the few defensive wounds on her hands. All the slash wounds to her body could have been left by one single-edged knife about six inches long. Uh, A double-edged knife could have also left some some of the smaller wounds, but those cuts could have been attributed to the tapered tip of the single-edged knife. As for Ron Goldman, he was stabbed to death along with Nicole on the walkway leading to the condo. Uh, He was just a few weeks shy of his 26th birthday. His death also occurred quickly, in minutes at most, according to the examiner. Goldman died from blood loss, largely from two stab wounds to his aorta, and he suffered numerous other stabs and slash wounds to his head and body. According to a world-renowned forensic pathologist who testified for the prosecution, this pathologist felt that it took only a single attacker about 15 seconds to kill Nicole and only one additional minute to kill Ron. During the reconstruction of the events, the police came to believe Goldman had arrived either sh- uh, during or shortly after the attack on Nicole. Goldman's family uh, believes that Goldman died trying to save Nicole. At around 10, 10 15 p.m. while watching TV, Pablo Venyevez, uh, a neighbor of Nicole Brown Simpson, a screenwriter, hears the cries, the constant barking of a dog. Pablo would later ghostwrite an infamous book called If I Did It uh, where uh, with O.J. Simpson roughly a d- decade later. After spending a lot of time with O.J. working on that book, he came to firmly believe that O.J. killed Nicole and Ron. 10.25 p.m., limo driver named Alan Park arrives at Simpson's home to pick him up for a scheduled trip to the airport. Sees the figure of a man rushing around inside Simpson's house. Not suspicious at all, huh? Uh, O.J. quickly stabs Ron, uh, or excuse me, if O.J., if, 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 uh, O.J. quickly stabbed Ron and Nicole to death around 10 p.m., he would have had plenty of time to get back home by 10.25 p.m. Somewhere between 1041 and 1055, another neighbor of Nicole's is out walking her dog. Notices Nicole's dog, a white Akita named Kato, weird, uh, by itself barking with blood on its paws. Too bad Kato was not Bojangles. Bojangles would have saved Nicole and Ron and pinned OJ by his nuts until the police showed up and then ripped off old Waterhead's nuts for all the beatings he'd previously given Nicole. Good boy, Bojangles. Good boy. Uh, 1055, the limo driver, Alan Parks, still waiting for Simpson. He's buzzed Simpson numerous times. Simpson has not answered, calls his boss, tells him Simpson's not at home. Park is told by his boss, just wait until 11.15. Simpson is uh, usually late. At 11.01, OJ's limo driver reports that OJ does finally exit the home. Over half an hour after he thought he saw someone scurrying about inside the house. Not suspicious at all. What was he doing in there? Showering off some blood? Ch- changing out some bloody clothes? Going over some new lines for a new Hertz rent-a-car commercial? Hi, I'm O.J. Simpson. Did you know that if you get somebody's blood all over your Hertz rent-a-car, you don't even have to clean it? It's covered in your rental agreement. Hertz will clean the car and never ask questions. The next time I stab the fuck out of some people, I want to be sure to drive off in a Hertz rent-a-car. Hertz, there's no better rental to drive away in after a double murder. Uh, O.J., then driven to LAX to catch his flight to Chicago. 11.45, O.J. leaves California, takes off to Chicago to attend a Hertz rent-a-car function. After the event, OJ had planned to play some golf, just you know, wind down a bit after a stressful and impulsive double murder. At 10 after midnight, June 13th, police said a passerby found the body of Nicole Brown Simpson, 35, sprawled on the steps of a walkway in front of the condo. The body of Ron Goldman, Ronald Lyle Goldman, found a few feet away in the shrubbery, both fully clothed. Over four hours later, 4 15 a.m., O.J., who has landed in Chicago, checks into the O'Hare Plaza Hotel. Around 5 a.m., detectives Mark Furman, a name. That would soon become infamous. Dude, whose previous use of racist language would be manipulatively introduced by O.J.'s defense team to completely motherfucking hijack the trial. A dude who had moved to Idaho to the Panhandle, settle in beautiful Sandpoint, roughly 45 minutes from the Suck Dungeon. And Philip Vanader arrive at Simpson's Rockingham mansion to inform him of Nicole's death, but instead they discover his blood-stained Bronco and a bloody glove that matched another one found near Goldman's body in front of Nicole's house. Huh? Feels like so much fucking evidence. Uh, around 5.40 a.m., Detective Furman decides to jump the wall of the property in order for police to get inside the estate. Once on the grounds, the detectives awaken Simpson's daughter, 25-year-old Arnell, who is staying in a guest house. She takes the police to the main house. Between 7 and 7.30 a.m., Detective uh, Van Adder declares the area a crime scene, goes to get a warrant to search the house. 10.45 a.m., with search warrant in hand, LAPD search OJ's mansion, find even more traces of blood on the property, including the Ford uh, in the Ford you know, the Bronco. Uh, at noon, OJ is told of Nicole's death and says, yeah, tell me something I don't know. Ha! I knew she was dead I got done stabbing her last... Oh, I mean, oh my God! How could that happen? OJ heads to the airport uh, to return to LA, immediately arriving early in the afternoon, returns to his Brentwood mansion, where he's handcuffed, taken to the police station, and questioned. After about two hours, Simpson leaves the police headquarters and is driven home. It's reported that OJ told his kids about their mother's death while reading them a story... A story went something like, uh, hey, hey kids, let me tell you the story about Nikita. It's a new story you haven't heard of yet. It's a story about a bad woman, horrible mother who doesn't want to live with her kid's daddy anymore. Nikita doesn't want to do what she's fucking told. So in order to protect his family and save his kids, Nikita's ex, but should be current husband, uh, uh, Boj, has to kill her and her boy, Toy Don. And she won't admit she's fucking him, even though he knows she is. He's been spying on her for months. I don't, I don't know what story you read. June 15th, 1994, the families of Nicole Brown, Ron Goldman hold, uh, attend the funerals. Simpson and his two children attend Nicole's fu- funeral. How awkward for Nicole's family. They had to have known he fucking did it. It's amazing this motherfucker's still alive. It's amazing someone hasn't revenge killed him. Two days later, public chaos begins. June 17th, 1994, O.J. Simpson officially charged with the murders of Brown and Goldman. Although Simpson originally promised to surrender to authorities, O.J. instead flees, becomes a fugitive. He is later spotted off the 405 freeway in the passenger seat of his white Bronco, O.J.'s old high school friend, Al Callens. The man whose girlfriend he stole so many years earlier was driving and the media circus ensues. These guys drive down the 405 from Brentwood all the way down to Laguna de Guel, down in Orange County, back up to 5 to the 91, to the 110, back up on the 405, to the 10, and then east headed into downtown LA. The police chase lasts over an hour and a half. So many people watch OJ's low-speed chase that Domino's Pizza reported Super Bowl-like numbers. Ah, I remember watching this chase back in Riggins, sitting there in my my bedroom first, watching the NBA Finals. Comes on the screen, then I head in the living room to watch with my mom. Uh, As OJ and AC are followed by police cars and helicopters, an estimated 95 million people tune in to watch the 60-mile pursuit which did famously interrupt the broadcast, the NBA finals, despite OJ being a possible murderer of the streets, immediately began to line up with OJ fans. There's pictures of guys online you can find holding up signs, saying stuff like, save the juice. We love the juice. Simpson was talking with LAPD on his car phone, and he was uh, certainly talking about suicide. A transcript of the conversation available online. OJ also wrote a note that most people consider his suicide note. In it, he wrote, I think of my life and feel I've done most of the right things. So why do I end up like this? Uh, Probably because you fucking stabbed two people. Uh, I can't go on. No matter what the outcome, people will look and point. I can't take that. Well, you you are and you can. I can't subject my children to that. Ah, you did. This way, they can move on and go on with their lives. Later in the letter, he claimed victimhood, as narcissists often do in these situations, saying, Nicole and I had a good life together. All this press talk about a rocky relationship was no more than what every long-term relationship experiences. All her friends will confirm that I've been totally loving and understanding of what she's going through. At times, I have felt like a battered husband or boyfriend. He actually says this. But I loved her. Make that clear to everyone. And I would take whatever it took to make it work. Don't feel sorry for me. (laughs) No, don't. Definitely don't. Wouldn't have if you you would have killed yourself. I've had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real OJ and not this lost person. God, what what a way to not take responsibility for being a piece of shit. The balls this dude has to say that he was battered. Lived in his own world. It's like, it's like part of him never left those projects, man. Part of him was fucking still waterhead. Simpson's white Bronco adventure eventually ends. OJ surrenders at his house before 9 p.m., thrown in jail without bail. In OJ's possession, he had a handgun? His passport, which he claimed he always had on him. <laughs> get out of here. Who the fuck always carries their passport outside of people who have to suddenly and routinely leave the country for work? Or people who are fleeing from justice? He had $8,750 in cash. OJ would deny that, but he had it. And he had an actual disguise. Like he had a fake fucking beard on him that he had bought weeks earlier. Said he, said he was going to use it to take his kids to Disneyland so people wouldn't bother him. Bullshit. Dude loved to be bothered. He loved fame. There's no history of him disguising himself in public so he could, you know, a- avoid autograph seekers. The evidence against Simpson was extensive. His blood was found at the murder scene. I repeat, his fucking blood found at the murder scene. Blood, hair, and fibers from both Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman found in Simpson's car and at his home. And repeat that again as well. Nicole and Ron's blood and hair were found in his fucking Bronco. Nicole and Ron's blood and hair were found inside his home. Why was Ron's hair and blood in either of those places? He never set foot in OJ's house. He never went in the Bronco. It was there because OJ obviously did it. Also, one of his gloves found in the Brown's home. The other outside his own house. The bloody shoe prints found at the scene match exactly. The print of some shoes owned by Simpson. God, I wish they would have been Dingo Boots. Dingo Boots. Nothing like Dingo Boots to walk away from a murder. Um, Police also found video uh, OJ had made. He'd quickly made video where he'd filmed himself in front of Nicole's condo directly after the murders. He was covered in blood. He stood over their dead bodies, knife in hand, and recorded himself doing a quick touchdown celebration. And he spiked one of the bloody gloves onto the ground. The juice! The juice is on the loose! Fuck these motherfuckers! I killed them! I killed them both! And I'll get away with it! I'm like a Scooby-Doo villain! If after they get coward-handed, they just get let go! I can do anything I want! I'm the greatest running back of all time! Now, not even Jim Brown could kill like the juice can! The juice is above the law! The juice is a living God! They didn't find that tape. But they might as well have. They found so much fucking evidence! Now the trial of the century. Now let's get to that. It's been covered in depth. So in a million other places, we're just going to skim over most of the details here. July 22nd, 1994 OJ pleads not guilty by saying he is absolutely hundred percent not guilty to the murder charges. Then he turns the camera and does a quick Hertz rent a car commercial. Hey, I'm OJ Simpson. If you're wearing some fucking dingo boots, you need to get away. Anyway, uh, on September 9th, the prosecution decides not to pursue the death penalty, seeks life without parole. The jury selected November 3rd, 1994, the initial jury selected is made up of four males, eight females, eight of the jurors are black, one Hispanic, one white, two are mixed race. I include their races here because the defense team's main strategy would be to make the jury think this case was all about race. Racist cops planting evidence. When it wasn't, it was about murder. On January 11th, 1995, the jury reports for duty. OJ's defense team gets to work. OJ would use what would later be called a dream team of defense attorneys. The team included Robert Shapiro, Sarah Kaplan, Johnny Cochran, Carl Douglas, Sean K- Chapman, Gerald Ullman, Robert Kardashian, Alan Dershowitz, F. Lee Bailey, Barry Shrek, Peter Newfield, Robert Blazier, and William Thompson. Fourteen attorneys. And yes, one of OJ's lawyers was his longtime friend, Robert Kardashian, father to the family who would go on to become famous mostly for just being famous. This army of attorneys reportedly cost somewhere around $50,000 a day, money well spent if you can buy your way out of a murder conviction, which you absolutely can sometimes. This dream team claims before a national television audience that Simpson had been framed by racist LAPD detectives, mostly Mark Furman, and it worked. They manipulated jurors into believing officers who had not been convicted of plenty of evidence before did plan at this time. Why? Because they're racist. That's what racist people do. They, just, like, they can't wait to fucking plant stuff. Here are some of the closing arguments made by Deputy District Attorney Marcia Clark, given September 27th, 1995. She started by addressing the issue that the defense was focused on, the racism of police officer Mark Furman. I love what she says here. On August 29th, the jury had heard old tape recordings of Furman making many racial slurs, slurs he had denied making during his cross-examination. He would actually be charged with perjury for this. And also about him bragging about his enforcement of police brutality, which would be investigated later and be found that mostly it's like he just uh, got caught up in talking tough. And most people think he greatly exaggerated his claims. He was, though, for sure a racist and a liar. However, again, no evidence of him ever framing anyone before. Lying and racism do not equal framing someone for murder. Clark says, let me come back to Mark Furman for a minute, just so it's clear. Did he lie when he testified here in this courtroom saying that he did not use racial epithets? Uh, I think it's racial epithets. Joe, how do you say that word? Joe doesn't know. (laughs) That word, I I, I learn it and I forget it by the time I see it again. He used racial words in the last 10 years. Yes. Is he racist? Yes. Is he the worst LAPD has to offer? Yes. Do we wish this person was never hired by LAPD? Yes. Should LAPD never have hired him? No. Or have ever hired him? No. Should such a person be a police officer? No. (laughs) <laughs> I love what she says here. In fact, do we wish there were no such person on the planet? Yes. God damn. She does not hold back on Furman. Made it very clear the prosecution well aware that he was a racist liar. She continues by saying, but the fact that Mark Furman is a racist and lied about it on the witness stand does not mean that we haven't proven the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And it would be a tragedy if with such overwhelming evidence, ladies and gentlemen, As we have presented to you, you found the defendant not guilty in spite of all that because of the racist attitudes of one police officer. Exactly. Logic. If only the world ran less on emotion and more on fucking logic. Democracy would be so much better. The court system would be so much better. Then Marsha Clark turns her attention to the sloppiness of the LAPD's police work saying, the defense has thrown out many, many other questions. They've thrown out questions about whether LAPD has some bad police officers. Does the scientific division have some sloppy criminalists? Does the coroner's office have some sloppy coroners? And the answer to all these questions is, sure, yes, they do. That's not news to you. I'm sure it wasn't a big surprise to you. But those are not, they're important issues. You know, we should look into the quality control. Things should be done better. Things could always be done better in every case at every time. There's no question about that. We're not here to vote on that today. The question is, what the evidence that was presented to you that relates to who killed Ron and Nicole, what does that tell you? Does that convince you beyond a reason, reasonable doubt? Yes, Marsha, it, it does. It really does. Most importantly for Marcia Clark's finale, she unleashes a flurry of evidence, most of which would be a slam dunk uh, in a heartbeat for a guilty verdict with today's DNA technology. She says, let me summarize for you what we have proven. One piece of the puzzle, we've proven the opportunity to kill. We've given the time window in which he was able to kill because his whereabouts were unaccounted for during the time when we know the murders were occurring. We have the hand injuries that were suffered on the night of his wife's murder to the left hand, and we know the killer was injured on his left hand. I didn't even bring that up before. That's even makes it even crazier. We have the post-homicidal conduct that I told you about, lying to Allen Park, a limousine driver, making Allen Park wait outside, not letting Cato pick up the little dark bag. That's another thing we didn't get into because, again, this suck is so long already. His reaction to Detective Phillips when he made notification. When Detective Phillips said to him, Nicole has been killed, instead of asking about a car accident, the defendant asked no questions. We had the manner of killings. Killings that indicate that it was a rage killing, that it was a fury killing, that it was not a professional hit. The manner of killing indicates that one person committed these murders or murders. One person with the same style of killing. We have the knit cap at Bundy. We have the, yeah, it's another piece of important evidence that there's so many in this thing. Uh, We have the evidence on Ron Goldman's shirt on the blue black cotton fibers, the defendant's hair. We have the Bruno Magli shoe print size 12, all of them size 12, his shoe size, all of them consistent going down the Bundy walk. We have the Bundy blood trail, his blood to the left of the bloody shoe prints. (laughs) Exactly. Just that. His blood to the left of the bloody shoe prints. We have the blood in the Bronco, his and Ron Goldman's. We have the Rockingham blood trail up to the driveway, in his bathroom, in the foyer. We have the Rockingham glove with all of the evidence on it. Ron Goldman fibers from his shirt. Ron Goldman's hair. Nicole's hair. The defendant's blood. Ron Goldman's blood. Nicole's blood. And the Bronco fiber. And the blue-black cotton fibers. We have the socks, and we have the blue-black cotton fibers on the socks. And we have Nicole Brown's blood on the socks. There he is, pointing at Odie Simpson. I mean, holy shit. There's so much evidence. The following day, the defense presents their closing arguments, their now famous arguments. Johnny Cochran delivers his now famous phrase. It makes me so angry every time I watch this video, which I did multiple times for this suck. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit regarding OJ's murder gloves being too tight. (sighs) It's infuriating. If you go back and watch the courtroom footage of OJ putting the gloves on, they do fucking fit. They fit. This this whole thing is insane. He's putting the gloves on over a pair of latex gloves so the evidence isn't contaminated in this famous fucking scene from the trial. The texture of latex, unlubricated latex, is very different than human skin. It's like, try putting on one of your socks, one of your socks that for sure fits when your feet are wet. Your foot isn't bigger when it's wet, but there's a different type of surface friction that exists between a wet foot and a sock then does exist a dry foot in a sock. It's harder to put a sock on a dry, or excuse me, on a wet foot than it is a dry sock. And I know that because I'm I'm impatient and I don't often dry my feet off well after I get out of the shower. And I try to jam my socks on. I'm like, oh yeah, that thing I've done a thousand times. Now, if you want to do another experiment, put on some gloves that just barely fit, then put on, but like, but that fit properly, nice and tight, but fit. Then put on some latex cleaning gloves. Now try to put those gloves on over the, the latex gloves. I did it out of curiosity. Guess what? Harder to get the fucking gloves on over another pair of gloves. OJ struggling with those gloves was the best goddamn acting moment of his entire career, and it worked. Why did it work? More on that in a bit, my my opinions. After deliberating for just four hours, the jury acquits Simpson on October 3rd, 1995. Marcia stands up, yells at the jurors on camera, you stupid fucks! Shame on you, you stupid fucks! Then she lifts her skirt up, She takes a shit on the courtroom floor. She gets up, she points at it, and she says, you did that. You did that today to justice. Then OJ steps into frame and says, you know, you didn't just shit on justice today. You know who didn't? Hertz rent a car. (laughs) Did you know that you can shit inside your rental with Hertz and not even have to pay for it? It's covered in your rental agreement. You shouldn't shit on justice, but you can shit in Hertz. I did, y'all. OJ Simpson's above the law. No, uh, that last step didn't happen. There was a great deal more to this case, but I don't want to do a 10-part OJ series. That's been done over and over. The trial has been examined and examined to death. But here's one interesting additional piece of info that points to OJ being so very guilty, something that happened years later. In 2006, he was supposed to release that book, If I Did It, the one he he wrote with Pablo, the ghostwriter, a book that Ron Goldman's family would uh, later release and collect proceeds from because of a civil trial verdict we'll talk about here in a few minutes. OJ did a two-hour interview with the publisher, the head of the publisher, Judith Regan, they would not air later until 2018 to promote this book. In the interview, Simpson goes to a, quote, purely hypothetical discussion of what happened on the night his ex-wife and Goldman were murdered on the steps of Nicole Simpson's Brentwood condo. One of OJ's prosecutors, Christopher Darden, truly believes in this interview OJ confesses to the killing. Simpson says he went to Nicole's condo on the night she died with a friend he described as Charlie, who gave him a knife. And he encountered Nicole and later Ron Goldman. No one knew OJ to know a Charlie. Simpson uh, in the interview details what he describes as reports from friends that Nicole had become involved in drugs and sex parties with fast-living female friends. He tells Judith Regan that he blamed Nicole's death on the unsavory people he claims were associated with Nicole. Regan said Simpson before the interview told her that he agreed to speak in quote-unquote hypothetical terms so he could maintain deniability with the children. Excuse me. Basically, he told her that he did it. And Regan has since said the interview absolutely convinced her OJ was the murderer. There's no doubt in my mind, she said. The O.J. Simpson criminal trial was actually just one of three trials O.J. would be involved in in the mid-90s. The second trial was a custody trial. While O.J. was in jail during his murder trial, Nicole's parents, Lou and Judith Brown, had taken custody of O.J. and Nicole's children. And when he was released, you know, they didn't want to uh, give the kids back to him. I mean, can you imagine giving those kids back to the man that you know, you know, beat the shit out of your daughter over and over again, terrorized her, the man you gotta know murdered her, now, coming to your house, demanding that you hand over your grandkids. Again, it's a miracle if someone didn't snap and kill this motherfucker. At least try and poison him or something. OJ would win this battle as well, although it would take five years to do so. Eventually, the judge in this case would state, or uh, yes, would state psychological testing, clinical observations, and review of Mr. Simpson's history with the children does not yield a picture of a man who has in the past or is likely in the future to lose control of himself in such a manner as to emotionally or physically harm the children. And there was the third trial, the civil trial over Nicole and Ron's murder. Now, what is a civil trial? In general terms, a civil lawsuit is the court based process through which person A can seek to hold person B liable for some type of harm or wrongful act. Usually, if person A is successful, he or she will be awarded compensation for the harm that resulted from person B's action or inaction. Also, note that libel uh, doesn't equate to guilty, it's more akin to responsible. Is person B responsible for what happened to person A? In reality, it's the closest thing we have to trying someone twice for the exact same crime. Uh, Interesting that a judge felt that there was enough evidence for the Goldman family to bring a civil case against Simpson for a crime he'd already been found not guilty of. Our judicial system is so very complex in many ways. Uh, Unlike a criminal case, which is looking to punish the wrongdoer for the crime, a civil case is meant to compensate the person who is harmed And again, usually in the form of monetary damages paid from the defendant to the plaintiff. Uh, The Goldman and Brown families filed a civil case in late 96, granted a trial that began in January of 97 in Santa Monica. No TVs this time around, no racist cops taking the stand, no dream team defense, and OJ loses. On February 11th, 1997, a Los Angeles County Superior Court jury uh, ordered OJ to pay a financially debilitating 25 million in punitive damages to the families of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald L. Goldman, the same jury awarded the Goldman family an additional $8.5 million in compensatory damages the week before. The total would be $33.5 million. The jury also deemed that Simpson had battered Nicole on the night of her murder. Ron Goldman's father, Fred Goldman, said this about the verdict. The money is not an issue. It never has been. It's holding the man who killed my son and Nicole responsible. Contrary to the media shitstorm that engulfed the previous criminal trial, the jury made a quick decision in this non-televised television trial, uh, televised trial over Simpson's guilt. Uh, juror number 11, a woman in her 30s, would say finding O.J. Simpson liable of the murders and acting with oppression and malice was one of the easiest decisions I have ever had to make. Hail Nimrod! Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the end, O.J. got away with murder, kind of, forced to pay a bunch of money that he certainly didn't have. Uh, not after all those fancy lawyers. Nicole and Goldman's families agreed to split the proceeds from an auction of Simpson's memorabilia, personal belongings, including his Heisman trophy. The Goldman's also got proceeds from that If I Did a Book, later republished with a new subtitle, Confessions of the Killer. A few years later, O.J. would lose another court case in California right after he moved to South Florida, where he'd spend many years. In 1999, the state of California issued a tax lien against Simpson for owed personal income taxes on top of the money he owed Nicole and Ron's family. On February 16, 1999, the auction house Butterfield and Butterfield sells nearly 400,000 worth of Simpson's artifacts. Uh, With all the proceeds going to Nicole and Goldman's families, his Heisman Trophy accounted for more than half of that total. September of 2000, OJ is visited by a Florida police officer after more domestic violence allegations. Simpson's new girlfriend, Christy Prody, called the police and alleged that Simpson had broken into her home. No charges were filed. It would be one of four such times police were dispatched to handle domestic incidents between this couple. Makes him look that much guiltier. Still beating women, or at least accused of doing so. Uh, Christy, when OJ dated her, looked eerily similar to Nicole. So creepy. Like they could easily be sisters. In 2000, Christy's 25, OJ's 53. They started dating in 96 when she was just 21 and he was 46. Hello, daddy issues. Meat needs to control young women and abuse them issues. OJ and Christy would date for 13 years, uh, live in the Miami, Florida area area together on OJ's NFL pension. By the time the relationship ends in 2009, after OJ would go back or would go to prison, uh, Christy would say OJ threatened to kill her. She also came to believe he absolutely killed Nicole and Ron. Said he also tried to get her to look more and more like Nicole the longer they dated. Had her hair dyed more blonde to look more like Nicole. Had her get breast implants so her breasts would look more like Nicole's. That's so fucking weird. December of 2000, Simpsons arrested on battery and auto burglary charges in Miami after an alleged confrontation with another motorist, guy named Jeffrey Pattinson. I remember when that story broke. October 24th, uh, 2001, is acquitted of all the charges, but there would still be so much more legal stuff. On December 4th, 2001, the FBI, DEA, and other local law enforcement searched Simpson's Kendall, Florida home, Kendall, a quiet suburb of Miami, for evidence that he might be involved with an ecstasy smuggling ring, as well as money laundering, and a coordinated effort to steal satellite TV signals. They find nothing. Simpson is neither arrested nor indicted, though some of his satellite equipment is confiscated. It would lead to him getting in trouble later. However, several months later, all the FBI documents culled from a lengthy wiretap investigation that led up to the December search of Simpson's home featured testimony from reputed drug smugglers regarding OJ allegedly having an insatiable coke habit and, uh, you know, being pretty chummy with a lot of prominent dealers. One Miami dealer, Andrew Anderson, told federal agents he was supplying Simpson and his girlfriends still messing around with numerous women with the illegal drug ecstasy. Uh, Anderson said that throughout his first two years in Florida, as Simpson was trying to res- restore his public image through hospital visits, media interviews, he was also indulging in cocaine and ecstasy abuse frequently. Think about the picture. This all paints dude gets away with murder, loses in civil court, but still gets to keep enough money to live a comfortable, you know, uh, life in Florida, have an early retirement, sipping drinks, playing golf, doing blow, doing some E fucking a Nicole lookalike. I hope this dude gets hit by a fucking bus. I hope ideally, I hope he gets hit by a bus being driven by Casey Anthony, who's not wearing a seatbelt. And she gets shot to the windshield and she lands on OJ and that impact kills them both. What a a great wrap up for those two tales. Uh, On July 4th, 2002, OJ gets in more legal trouble. So much more. Simpson, finally, justice. He gets cited for speeding on his powerboat through a manatee zone. He has to pay $130 fine. We got him, boys. We got OJ Simpson, guilty as the day is long, taking the juice down. No way he's slipping out of this $130 fine. Not even Johnny Cochran can stop it this time. Uh, Simpson gets in another weird bit of legal trouble. July 26, 2005, he loses a civil trial brought on by DirecTV over signal theft charges stemmed from the 2001 search of his home that we talked about. He has to pay $25,000 to the satellite cable company. Got you again, OJ. Juice isn't running loose in Miami. Oh, you thought we were done after the manatee fine. Ha! Oh, now, motherfucker, that's just the beginning. Got you on signal theft charges now. Oh you, oh, you thought you could watch College Game Day, huh? On our dime? No. Th- at this rate, we're going to have you in jail for a few days by 2020. Now, let's, let's actually take a quick break from this timeline to talk about how in 2006, OJ also attempted to sell a tasteless reality prank show called Juiced, a show he made a demo reel for. It's been, it's been too long on Time suck since we checked in with the idiots of the internet. Of the Internet. 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 Juiced was supposed to be a hidden camera prank show, in the style of punk If you remember that show with OJ Simpson as the prank master general, supposed to be a big comeback vehicle. Made during a time when reality TV was exploding, it's very Wild West. They're putting all kinds of shows on the air. OJ and a production crew. OJ hired, filmed OJ pretending to be homeless, trying to sell oranges on the oranges on the street in one prank, waiting to yell at the line. The show's signature line: "You've been juiced." Uh, except he doesn't trick anybody. It's, it's, it's pretty cringeworthy. It's pretty awkward. Uh, he pretends to be a bingo number caller in another sketch who's really bad at calling numbers. And he pisses off a bunch of people at a senior center. <laughs> He's just got juiced! Then there's a prank where a topless woman jumps on a trampoline for quite a while. That's, that's it. There's nothing else to this prank. Uh, it's, it's weird and easily the best part of the show. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, there's other weird pointless sketches. And then there's a rap video. And it is the fucking best. And by best, I mean worst. Oh, but it's so good. So it it is so bad, it's good. This video shows how O.J. is completely tone deaf and how he lacks any self-awareness regarding how America sees him. Uh, The video features O.J. dancing around, surrounded by topless dancers, dancers literally roughly 40 years younger than him. He's saying shit like, don't you know there's no stopping the juice? When I'm on the floor, I'm like a lion on the loose. Better shoot me with a tranquilizer dart. Don't be stupid. I'm not a Simpson named Bart. Mm Mm-hmm, so good, you guys. Uh Listen listen to just <laughs> Listen to just a bit of this beauty Before we talk about the comments underneath it So many pictures of strippers Why do people wonder about my intentions mm-hmm. Why do people ask me so many questions Because you're a murderer How I made it to the top about All the times I make those deep defensive stops Yo, coach, that's been the juice When I'm on the field, I'm like a lion going loose. Better shoot me with a tranquilizer Dutch <laughs> name <Brian laughs> oh, uh-huh. like the, the, the only way I live my life the talking about football Still talking about football <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Some cop shot at him. okay this whole time yeah he's also surrounded by predominantly uh young blonde white women I mean and just knowing what we know about him maybe don't do that maybe a little clueless. Maybe a little, again, a little tone deaf. This guy's a fucking idiot. Uh, Dragonblazer97 posts, please God, no one report this and get it taken down. To which user Mike replies, he done shut the rap game down. Hmm? Well, well played there, well played there. Uh, Commenter Obeyed writes, so apparently he murders music also. Exactly. So far, uh, most of the comments actually make sense. Oh, then thank God. Papa Wolf shows up. Papa Wolf writes, he needs a hard-on first. Uh, I'm sorry. What? Uh, making this even <laughs> making this even better. He spells need as in like like your like your knees, like K N E E D, which is not a real word, but like, like it would refer to the middle part of your. Like who the fuck watches this video and thinks, huh? What is missing? It's got a great beat, solid lyrics, good camera work, lots of boobs, but something still feels off. Ah. <sighs> Is, is it the fact that it features a woman beating murderer surrounded by women who resemble the woman he murdered? No, that can't be it. Oh, I know. If you look really close, you can tell that the juice doesn't have a boner. Why do they have a boner? This video needs a boner. My God. Uh, user Credo Ape Thor posted something that cracked me up, writing, I wish he wasn't a murderer. Mm-hmm. Yep, me too. Way, way to go, Credo Ape Thor. Way to, way to throw that out there. Yeah, we were all thinking it. But only you had the balls to write it down. User Ernesto Ortega goes way out of his way. I love when people do stuff like this. Goes way out of his way to let us all know he is very straight. He likes having sex with attractive women, for sure. He writes, I like the music video strippers. All of them look sexy. I would date and screw all of them. Okay, good job, Ernesto. Way to get that off your chest. No one's going to ever question your sexuality. Uh Uh-uh, not now. After that definitive statement. Uh, finally user Mr Marvelous posts three simple words. He did it. And then DragonBlazer97 comes back to win the internet writing, "Yeah, but this makes up for it." <laughs> That's all for today's idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, uh, juice never gets picked up for, t- for TV. And the following year in 2007, O.J. actually gets caught for a serious crime. On September 13th, Simpson is arrested and charged with several cumulative counts of robbery with a deadly weapon, burglary with a deadly weapon, and conspiracy to commit a crime. According to the police report, two sports memorabilia dealers claim that Simpson and five other men, some of them armed, barged into their Las Vegas hotel room and stole various O.J. Simpson memorabilia items, which Simpson claims had originally been stolen from him. I I love it. Dude gets arrested for stealing his own memorabilia. I should try that. Next time someone brings uh, like one of my uh, vinyl records to a show for me to sign, I should just fucking take it. Nah, nah, dude. Not giving it back. It's mine. Dude, it's mine. It's my Look at it. it. Has my name on it. Uh, October 3rd, 2008, Simpson found guilty on, uh, on a dozen weapons robbery and kidnapping charges for the Vegas crime. December 5th, he's sentenced to 33 years in prison, eligible for parole after nine. Simpson simply remarked to the judge, I didn't want to steal anything from anyone. Well, then you shouldn't have fucking stole it. And then in my mind, he winks at the camera in, uh, in the court, turns and says, if I had it to do all over, I would use a Hertz rent-a-car. Hertz consistently rents the best getaway cars in the business. If you need to flee the scene fast, take it from the juice. There's no one faster than Hertz. There's no, there's no way Hertz is ever gonna sponsor the show now. After this verdict, Ronald Goldman's father, Fred, tells the media, it was satisfying seeing him in shackles like he belongs. Less than two years ago, October 1st, 2017, OJ released from prison on parole after serving his minimum sentence, nine years behind bars. After his release, the state of Florida says that Simpson is no longer welcome there. <laughs> Writing, our state should not become a country club for this convicted criminal. Damn, not even Florida wants him. That's saying a lot. The home of Florida man doesn't want O.J. Simpson, a state famous for headlines about dirtbags. Uh, Simpson is currently living in Las Vegas. That sounds about right. Active on social media, His story continues. Just last month, Simpson joined Twitter. He already has almost 900,000 followers. So safe to say he's going to be making some endorsement money all over again like he used to. How fucked up is that? And how terribly great would it be if he started tweeting about hurts? Please, please do that. Hi, <laughs> right, this is OJ Simpson. Don't tweet and drive. But if you are going to tweet in a car, do it in a Hertz, rent a car. Tweet like I do. Tweet about your football glory days. Tweet as if no one thinks you're a cold blooded murderer. Tweet like you're not someone with a long history of domestic violence. I'm done putting some of the hurts on the lady folk, but I ain't done with Hertz rent a car. Pretty sickening, scrolling through his feed, which you can do without following him, by the way. Uh, He looks good, looks healthy, posts about a video a day, seems to be enjoying his life. Nick seems to be still supporting his giant fucking melon just fine, Uh, posting tons of videos about him playing golf, boasting about his NFL accomplishments, pontificating about politics, talking a lot about fantasy football, popped up a few weeks ago on a Buffalo Sports radio show and Buffalo podcast. Dude's probably going to have his own podcast soon. Still living large on that NFL pension pension money. Free after all this. Let's get out of today's time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Before we go to today's takeaways, I have some some last thoughts on the OJ trial. I, I just want to say that I get why the jury let him off with murder. I really do. Emotionally, it does make sense to me. Like I said earlier in the episode, LA still reeling from the Rodney King beating, the race riots that followed that occurred just two short years prior to the murders. Racial tension still very high. African-Americans in the LA area knew damn well that many LAPD officers were racially prejudiced against blacks. The trial just reconfirmed this, especially against black men. They'd watched the King video. And that was but one of many racially motivated brutality incidents. Many had seen friends and neighbors beaten unjustly by police, and many of them just wanted a win. Now a hero of the black community is on trial, someone who had become a symbol of how a poor black kid from the projects could conquer white America and live the American dream to the fullest. And now this hero, this mascot of Hope, wanted for murder. It must have felt like a punch in the gut. And it looked bad. It looked like he really did it. It looks really, really fucking bad. But OJ hired a lot of smooth-talking top-shelf attorneys. And there is uh, this powerful psychological phenomenon we've talked a lot about here on the Time Suck. uh, It's called confirmation bias. As a juror, I can see how you could choose to just focus on the racist cops. You could let some of those smooth-talking attorneys convince you that, you know, uh, what you must know deep down inside about his abuse, about his murder, it's just just not true. You just, confirmation bias lets that float on by and you just focus on these fucking cops that must have framed OJ. They hated OJ, right? They hated black Americans. They hated you. So fuck them, right? Through acquitting OJ, you get to give a little fuck you back to the system that has always been so stacked against you. Wins hard to come by. And this is a big win. I get that as much as a white dude living in Idaho can get that. I really do. It's just a shame that OJ, of all people, got to be the recipient of this racial payback. To me, that's the real tragedy of this trial. To me, the OJ trial, good reminder that we, Meat Sacks, are highly emotional creatures. Emotion can and often does cloud our judgments. I've talked about it before, but I was on a jury for a day and it was an open and shut DUI case a couple years back. Dude was beyond guilty. Young dude passed out behind the wheel, drove across the freeway onto oncoming traffic, then flipped down the bank at 3 a.m., like drove across both sections of the freeway. When the cops found him, his blood alcohol limit was over three times legal limit, and he said that because he was shook up by the wreck, he decided to start pounding beers by the side of the road until the cop showed up, which no one has fucking ever done who started off sober. I almost laughed out loud when he said that. Ludicrous. And yet, two of the other jurors I worked with wanted to let him off. Two emotional thinkers with axes to grind. One of whom, when I grilled him, is like, why? Why can't you just go along with the guilty verdict? He said it was because he thought cops were assholes. He thought local cops were assholes. He'd had some bad experiences being pulled over. And he essentially felt like a guilty verdict was letting the cops win. Not kidding. Dude got so mad when I pressed him on this, he literally started shaking. Dude was a fucking basket case, by the way. He reminded me, you don't have to pass a psycho valve to be a juror. You don't have to pass an IQ test either. It's fucking terrifying. Even worse, the other jurors were gonna go along with Captain Crazy Pants because too many people are just not confrontational. They just didn't want to confront an emotionally unstable nutjob. So many meat sacks are such terrible decision makers. In my opinion, not only did OJ do it, but the prosecution proved he did it. But because we meat sacks are so often so scarred and flawed and have so many biases, that that, that proving that just wasn't enough. Sometimes we meat sacks are just going to hear what we want to hear, period, end of story. We're just determined to get things wrong sometimes. To me, flawed human nature is the only reason why OJ is out there tweeting. We got it wrong. We got it wrong with OJ, and the juice is still on the loose. Time now for top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The OJ murder case ended up becoming something, uh, becoming about something it should have never been about race. Yes, there were some racist assholes involved, see Mark Furman, but the evidence of OJ's guilt was and is overwhelming. Furman didn't plant years of domestic abuse allegations against, uh, you know, uh, with Nicole. He didn't plant motive and opportunity. He didn't plant future legal analysts and acquaintances thinking that OJ is for sure guilty. Outside of OJ's legal team and a few conspiracy minded authors, almost no one thinks he was actually innocent. A lot of people think he was guilty. Uh, Number two, OJ should forever be remembered as a batter of women while his first wife, Marguerite, insisted that he never harmed her. Nicole reported abuse eight times, dozens of other cases not reported. Even OJ's girlfriend post-Nicole's murder, Christy Prody, who stood with him for, you know, almost 15 years, has come out saying that OJ was a violent serial abuser as well. In that 2006 interview, in which OJ, for all intents and purposes, admitted to killing both people, he also admitted that he worried that he would be remembered as a batter of women. Well, he should be. Number three. The OJ case changed the way America looked at domestic violence because of this case. Domestic violence was quickly taken from the privacy of the home and placed into the public discourse. Sometimes something great can come from something terrible. Thank Nimrod. Number four, two murders can't take away athletic greatness. Holy shit. I got to give it to him there. Bow-legged waterhead fucking destroyed football. His peak five years between 71 and 75, perhaps the best five straight years any running back ever had in the history of the NFL. OJ still holds college and pro records 40 years after retiring, including most 200-yard games in the NFL career with six, highest amount of yards rushing average per game in an NFL season at over 143, largest margin of winning votes for the Heisman Trophy in NCAA history, also ranked second currently all-time in murders committed with a knife by a current or former NFL player. Of course, this record comes with an asterisk because he was found not guilty. Uh, And I'm not kidding about the second thing. A crazy fuckhead named Robert Rozier Another murder from Alaska, like last week, has killed more. Dude only lasted a few games in the NFL. Played defensive end for the St. Louis Cardinals in 1979. He was released for drug and alcohol issues. Also spent two weeks in camp with the Raiders. Rozier was a member of the Yahweh Ben Yahweh's Temple of Love Weird Florida Cult in 1995. And the story goes that in order to enter Yahweh's elite inner group known as the Brotherhood, he had to kill a white devil and return with the body part to prove it. Rozier would admit to killing seven white people to please Yahweh. He was arrested and charged with murder on October 31st, 1986. Halloween, detectives reported that Rosier's fingerprints had been found at the scene of two random murders where transients had been killed, their ears had been sliced off, and press releases linked him with at least five other murders in Miami. After agreeing to testify against Yahweh's organization, he was sentenced to 22 years in prison after serving 10 years of the sentence, set free, in 1996. He could have possibly had some drinks with O.J., and uh, his is a, is, a, is a story, a possible story for another suck. Number five, the last takeaway, something I didn't mention. It was the final Hollywood project starring OJ before he murdered his ex-wife and her friend. The project was called Frogman. It was a movie-length pilot for what OJ and NBC were hoping would be a successful TV show. The show was discussed but never introduced as evidence during Simpsons' criminal trial. In a chilling echo of those killings, a scene in the two-hour movie meant to launch the action drama series features Simpson's character grabbing what he believes to be an intruder, the young woman turns out to be his daughter, and momentarily holding a knife to her throat. The prosecution also investigated reports that Simpson received military training, including how to use a knife in preparation for that role. Frogman was NBC's attempt to recapture some of the fun, love, and spirit of the A-team Uh, Yet for all its notoriety, Frogman has been kept locked in vaults at Warner Brothers. Few have seen the final product, including many of those involved, who found themselves caught in the center of a media storm, even as they watched a lucrative career opportunity ride off into the sunset, hitched to Simpsons, Fort Bronco. We believed on many levels for many reasons. Broadcasting the program in whole or in part was inappropriate, said studio spokeswoman Barbara Rogliotti. All those reasons seem as valid today as they were then. Time sucks. Top five takeaways. And that is how we suck the juice. Yes, I know there are arguments out there in books about how OJ didn't do it. But I didn't include them because this is already, at least based on the notes, the longest episode of Time Suck yet, and also because I don't I don't buy it. I default to the philosophic principle of Occam's razor once more. Suppose there exist two explanations for an occurrence. In this case, the one that requires the least speculation is usually correct. For me, the one that requires the least speculation is that he 100% did it. Thanks to the TimeSuck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Velocamp. Jesse, Guardian of Grammar Dobner. Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. TimeSuck High Priest, Alex Dugan. The guys at Bitelixer. Danger Brain. Access Apparel. Thanks to Heather Knowledge Ninja Rylander for the preliminary research. Zach, Scriptkeeper Flannery for the additional research. And me for some more research. We do our best to thoroughly explore these topics. And then I mush mouth them up every single week. Uh, next week, still more true crime before we take at least a two-week departure uh, from the true crime based on the subsequent topics. Next week, a female serial killer, an old-timey one at that. You know I love me an old-timey suck. Belle Gunness, Norwegian-born Belle Gunness, immigrated to the U.S. in 1881 and had a series of suspicious fires and deaths followed her, that followed her immediately. Uh, She was like the female H.H. Holmes in some way. She loved to collect on life insurance policies. Like Holmes, Bell would recruit lonely folks looking for some romance, and then they would just fucking disappear. She posted notices and love-lorn columns to entice wealthy men to her farm, and then they were never seen again. And then authorities eventually found the remains of over 40 victims on her property. And then Bell disappeared without a trace. And she didn't even need a Ford Bronco or an old football buddy to try and get away. Hell's Bell next week. Time sucker updates right now. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. Time sucker and gun expert Zachary Carpenter sent in an update to the Robert Hansen suck. I got a similar variation to this update from many of you. Zach wrote, "I'm li- listening to episode 154, and you mentioned the Mini 14 looking like the M16 AR-15 on the civilian market, but the Mini 14 is designed as a scaled down M14." That was an older service rifle chambered in the 308. The Mini 14 is similar to the M16 in the fact that they use the same bullet and magazine, but they look much different. Fair enough. Fair enough. One of my sources described the gun as looking like an M16, and I just accepted that. And I was kind of wrong. I will say, doing some Google image searches, certain Mini M14s with the right coloring and slight modifications to the, to the stock look to me... As being very M16-ish. You know, it's funny. Over the course of this uh, of time suck, so I have learned that gun experts have way more in common with comic book nerds than I would have ever expected. You guys notice details no one else gives a fuck about. And I love it. <laughs> Keep teaching the rest of us. I like it. Uh, Polish-Korean time sucker Dan Dobkowski. Actually, D- uh D- Dobkowski, Sends in a cool Napoleon update. This, this victim of Polish evil, Tom Foolery, writes, uh, dabakowski he, he wrote it phonetically, to preempt the jokes. It is a Polish last name, but I am fully Korean. Yes, that confuses people, including employers and teachers I've had over the years. I'm adopted. Well, I'm sorry, Dan. Uh, I want you to tell me where the Polish monsters who stole a fucking human baby live. And I will have them exterminated like the filthy savages they are. Dan continues. Just wanted to put this out there regarding your comments from the Napoleon Bonaparte uh, Bonaparte, Suck, specifically about troops lining up shoulder to shoulder instead of hiding behind trees and rocks. Yes, I'm late. Just started listening a few weeks ago. I apologize if someone has mentioned this to you before. They have not. This is such a good update. Uh, Line infantry tactics in the late 1700s weren't entirely due to the commander's total apathy for the lives of their soldiers. It actually made a good deal of sense given the circumstances of the time. Number one, Muskets had no rifling and thus were extremely inaccurate. The only way to reliably hit anything was to send dozens and dozens of musket balls into a general area. Rifled muskets existed but were not issued in large numbers and were typically hunting weapons. During the Revolutionary War, oftentimes militiamen were using their hunting rifles for combat, hence why they shot much better than the British and why they utilized things like cover. Two, communication sucked. The best way to communicate information was by screaming loudly and musical instruments, meaning that people had to stay close to hear any kind of orders. Muskets and cannons are really loud. Number three, cavalry charges were still a real viable thing and would shred infantry that were spread out and disorganized. The best defense was a huge mass of dudes with long bayonets creating a spike wall for horses to crash into. Holy shit. Spike wall sounds terrible. I'm loving this update, Dan. Number four, troops were not well-trained. Other times they needed to be instructed on virtually everything, especially during battle. Most of the soldiers weren't battle-hardened professionals, didn't have the initiative to work well alone. Another great point. Five, lastly, firing in three groups is pretty common. One line of soldiers would fire, then begin to reload. As they reloaded, which would take a butt ton of time, a second and then third line of soldiers would fire. By the third volley, the first could fire again, creating a constant fire with no pauses. Anyway, my, apologize, or my apologies if this was already brought up in a previous update, and I did post this to the Facebook group, so the cult will hear of this regardless. Hopefully this helped explain a little bit as to why a few hundred years ago they were employing tactics that seem totally suicidal to us today for reasons other than a callous disregard for peasant lives. What an incredible update. Uh, thank you, Dan. Uh, so happy to see that those Polish bastards did not completely destroy your human mind. Uh love the extra warfare. Now I love these kind of updates so much. One of my favorite things to learn these additional details that I would never otherwise learn. Hail Nimrod. Uh, now let's hear from an angry fellow Idahoan and time sucker Eric Urban who completely missed one of my jokes and got kind of fired up about it. Uh, <laughs> Eric wrote, The fuck, dude. You went to Glacier National Park and found it three out of five. Basically, that means that you shame me as a fellow Idahoan and fellow Reagan citizen at some point. You shame yourself as a time sucker by underrating the national parks, and you should always encourage people to visit and donate to parks. Your three out of five Glacier National Park rating is a failure of your own. Please revisit. Please continue to suck, but also suck yourself when you feel compelled to rate a national park. A three out of five is a place to go? You love Teddy. You should push any person to enjoy seeing them and continue their patronage. Love the outrage, Eric. But uh, God, there's just too many inside jokes now to keep track of. Way back, this is why I said this, way back in the 100th episode, The Drunkest Fuck Suck, I went on a rant about some idiot of the internet who supposedly loved everything about a book they read on Amazon. And after just nothing but nice words uh, about the book, they rated the book three out of five stars and it fired me up. And I went, and I went off about it. I was a little drunk too. And then the joke stuck in the Facebook group for a while. It's been too long since I brought it up. Probably should have explained that when I was saying three out of five stars for Glacier, I meant it's, it was, it's perfect. I meant like five or six out of five. Okay. Are we good now, Ranger Rick? Quick shout out on behalf of Evan Hare, who writes, dear master t- uh, time sucker, wanted to write you a quick note, tell you how much I love time suck. My amazing brother-in-law took me to your live podcast stand-up in Grand Rapids at the end of last year. I've been hooked ever since. I think your podcasts are amazing. They're the only thing that get me through the workday. I just have one request, not from me, but if there's any way you could give a shout out to my brother-in-law on one of your podcasts. His name is Jay Dancer. It would make his year. He's a space lizard and one of your biggest fans. I understand if you can't, because you probably get a million of these requests, but thanks for all you do. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles. P.S. Can't wait to see you again in Grand Rapids. We already have our tickets. Ah, fantastic. Hail Jay Dancer. Thank you, Jay, for bringing in your bro-in-law. Glad that you, know, that you two have no shortage of fucked up stuff to talk about now. Or interesting subjects. And now, final update's a big one. Final update comes in from an amazing time sucker, Jessica. I will leave her last name out. Not because she requested that, because she did not. But I want to protect her from any unwanted criticism that may come her way based on her criticism of me, which I was glad to hear. Let me state that very clearly. Uh, This gives me a chance to address some of my thoughts on what I think is acceptable when it comes to my humor. Jessica writes: stuttering, dot, dot, dot. Hello, Dan Cummins, Master Sucker. I'm a huge fan of your podcast and was turned on to it by the love of my life and 11-year partner, Charlie. He's funny, kind, and smart. He shares a lot of the traits that you do with his hilarious yet quite on point point rantings. We think you are amazing and have been spreading the suck as much as possible and I even became a space lizard. I always thought that if I wrote to you, it would be in the context of sharing something funny or asking for a shout out until I listened to the recent Robert Hansen suck. What a douchebag. However, I felt like I was getting punched in the gut each time you mocked his stuttering. Charlie has lived with a stutter his whole life and the bullying is real. I have heard his stories about being mocked and ridiculed by family members, teachers, peers, strangers, and friends starting from a very young age. I have seen the shock on people's faces as he struggles with words that start with a vowel. I have heard people repeat his stuttering back to him thinking it's funny or that he simply fumbled a bit on a word. I have watched him have to explain his stutter to people and worse, I've seen him apologize for it. This is a thing that he deals with literally every day, and I've heard him wonder how different his life would be if he didn't stutter. This breaks my heart. He was the kid who always knew the answer in class, but would never raise his hand for fear that he would stutter and people would laugh. To this day, he has anxiety over simply making a phone call or talking to new people. I just wanted to raise some awareness, as he and I were, for the first time ever, not on your side of the joke. Don't worry. We love the hell out of you and always will. But I also know you are always open to different perspectives. And I wanted to share that the stuttering joke seemed off sides and made both of us a little sad inside. It was hard to listen to. Stuttering is actually kind of fascinating, although devastating to the one suffering from it, and perhaps deserves to suck. Anyway, thanks for making me feel like I could reach out and be heard. You are an awesome human being. Hail Nimrod. Big hail to Lucifina. And a huge thank you to you and your team for nailing it hard. <laughs> Love for Minnesota, Jessica. Well, hello, Jessica, and hello, Charlie, as well. I, uh, I love that both of you have enjoyed the show overall, and I love that you feel that you can reach out and be heard, because that's absolutely true. Uh, I no longer get back to everybody's messages or, you know, uh, and, and I, so, sorry, I have had, I have to say this, uh, before I get into this little last final tirade, I went, I was in Mexico last week, and I don't know what happened. Lindsay and I got some weird virus. I have had non, it doesn't matter if I eat or not, non, for three days, nonstop air pressure in my chest feels like um, there's a balloon somebody keeps pumping up inside. So I apologize for all the weird stops I'm trying to fight through it here. Uh, but yes, I know I don't get back to all the messages, but I appreciate all the messages sent in. Uh, the only reason, uh you know, all your messages don't get responded to is because of that damn enemy of us all, Father Time. just not enough time. That friend of the Reaper. First off, sorry the stuttering jokes stung. Sorry that Charlie's had to deal with stuttering. As you point out, that has not been fun. It does not continue to be fun. As, as far as the running gag being off color, I, I'm not sure it was, and I'll explain why in some detail here. Actually, I'd like to use this as an excuse to explain my kind of philosophy of comedy, which, which encompasses those jokes. Someone once said, or perhaps numerous people have said, analysis is the death of comedy. We'll get ready for some some unfunny, but I think interesting, comedic deconstruction here. The most popular character on the show so far, based on emails and merch requested, based on people actually dressing up like him, coming to shows... Based on people yelling his catchphrase during live shows, has to be Andre, what this big deal, Chikatilo. And why is that? Chikatilo was a fucking monster, as was Hanson, as was Fish, Kemper, etc. Uh Mostly, I feel that people have laughed at Chikatilo because of A, his impotence, and B, his comedic frustration over an obsession with his impotence. And of course, C, a silly accent, which could be seen as offensive in its own right if anyone has been teased for having an accent. I think many of us find it funny that a monster, a murderer, someone obsessed with proving his dominance suffered from an ailment, historically, right or wrong, that has symbolized a lack of manliness, a lack of traditional masculine power, impotence. But is is impotence funny for everyone? Fuck no. I, I think you see where I'm going now. Many men suffer from impotence. Many men have been mocked for impotence. Many men suffer so much embarrassment over it, they They have a lot of dating problems. They refuse to see a doctor, to treat it. I've I've talked about this with the hymns commercials. It's a real source of true, not funny shame for many people. So is it okay to make fun of Chikatilo's impotence? And if it is, is it okay to also make fun of Hanson's stutter? I think it's interesting where we draw our lines, is it not? And notice that I say Chikatilo's impotence and Hanson's stutter. I'm not saying if you have a stutter, you are an idiot and, and deserving of mockery. If I heard some random person stuttering... I wouldn't start openly mimicking them. I wouldn't mock them. Uh, I'm not making fun of stuttering in general. I'm making fun of how it relates to Robert Hansen in what I think is a comedic way. Also, I, I do know a little something about speech issues. Uh, I am the mush mouth king. I, I love getting teased about being a mush mouth. My mush mouth is not a stutter, but I am physically tongue tied. Uh, I probably should have uh, seen a speech therapist as a kid. There wasn't one in Riggins. Uh, I have, uh, you know, based on how I've been teased by others, uh, myself, and based on the w- words of several dentists, an abnormally small mouth, <laughs> I had to have some teeth removed as a kid to make room in my little mouth for some new teeth coming in. And, uh, and my mouth is, you know, looks even smaller because of a, I have a pretty big head. My young niece, Ellie, has been uh, pretty good about pointing that out to me. Sometimes I mispronounce words out of ignorance. Other times it is genuinely, physically very difficult for me to get my tongue-tied little mouth to cooperate Also super prone to canker sores, which makes speaking even more fun, Uh, sometimes quite literally painful to speak because I have the equivalent of multiple stomach ulcers inside of my mouth, sometimes four or five at one time. Uh, I I run through a healthy amount of Aleve and Advil to kind of dull the pain enough so that I don't try to move my mouth in ways to avoid the pain and speak in an even worse, mushier way. Do I get mad about the teasing? I don't. Uh, Why? I can't help it. Might as well embrace the mush mouth title. I'm always going to have it. Uh, we all have little eccentricity. Some of my teeth are, are crooked as well. I don't care about braces. I don't give a fuck about super straight teeth. That bothers some people. Some people, their teeth are very important that way. But again, I know what I have is not as severe or as noticeable as a stutter, but also I think it's important to own our quirks, uh, our shortcomings, our disabilities, our differences, whatever semantics you want to use. It's the, it's the best way to control how they affect us. If you're self-conscious about something, can you not find a way to own it and take power of mockery away from others as best you can? Maybe for stuttering, and I'm not kidding, maybe carry a little card in your wallet that says, yeah, I stutter, so what? At least I'm not an asshole mocking someone who stutters, so fuck you. Right? Like, how great would it be to hand that to somebody who's being a dick about it? Stab them right in the gut. Just know, Jessica, that when I make a joke like the Hanson joke, I know I'm gonna upset some people, but if I don't tell that joke, where do I stop? What's the next joke I don't tell? Where is the line? It's subjective. We all collectively decide where it is. Like I was telling my kids the other day, never forget that all of our laws, customs, philosophies, to me, even our religions, they're just some meat sack opinions and thoughts that a fair amount of people have agreed upon. None of it is set in stone. What's offensive? Well, whatever we choose to think is offensive. Nothing verbally is inherently offensive. For me, dark humor is acceptable when the joke is directed at the right target. And what I find subjectively to be the right way, I feel my stuttering target with Hansen uh, you know, is Hansen. I'm making fun of him having a stutter, not stuttering itself. Why is his stuttering funny to me? Because of the frustration it gave a murderer. He craved power. He craved dominance. And stuttering, rightly or wrongly, doesn't verbally convey power. I found it funny, still think it's funny, for him wanting to say some dark super villain shit and not be able to and then be super annoyed with himself. For another example, I wouldn't make fun of obesity in general. A lot of people struggle with obesity. Hurtful, sensitive, subject to many, many people. I'm not going to say something along the lines ha ha, you're fat. That's so fucking funny, you're fat. To me, that's mindless and cruel. But if I come across a serial killer who's very overweight, whose victims often get away because he's too overweight to catch him, if he has to take a lot of breaks while torturing somebody because of his weight, if he dies of a heart attack trying to chase the victim down, that's fucking hilarious to me. Probably going to make some jokes at the expense of his weight. Will those jokes offend some people? Sure will. Chikatilo offended many. But I'm going to keep making these jokes because I would rather live in a world where there's a lot we can laugh at rather than start tightening and tightening what we can laugh at into a little tiny bubble of just a few little things so we don't hurt anyone's feelings. There's a Bill Burt quote out there that I cannot fucking find for the life of me and it's driving me crazy today. Two years ago, it felt like it was everywhere. Uh, the, The gist of it is Bill talked about how for a lot of people who love comedy, it's all jokes, all fun and games until a joke touches on something personal to them. Then suddenly the comedy's over. Now it's a hate speech that really resonated with me. With my own stand-up, I've had instances of that many times. I I wrote these jokes about mean greeting cards years ago. Big crowd pleasers, closed a lot of shows on them. I had over 10 of these fake greeting cards, making fun of marriage, kids, Christian holidays, Jewish holidays, all sorts of stuff. I had one about troops getting cheated on by their girlfriends while they were on duty overseas, and I got hate emails for some military. Uh, You know, I got some uh, emails from people offended on behalf, of military members. People offend on behalf of others, by the way. Always the fucking worst. I uh, had another card making fun of pet condolences cards. Got some emails for some animal lovers. And I found it hilarious that people uh, couldn't see the hypocrisy at laughing and all the other things I've said. And then I mock something dear to their heart. Suddenly I'm not joking. Almost done with this comedic explanation now, I promise. But I've been thinking about this for a lot of episodes. I also had an old joke about making a blind friend. I think I just pushed him into the Grand Canyon. And then I worried about what blind people would think about that joke. And then I had two blind fans show up at a show, sit in the front, and I skipped that joke like a coward because I was worried about offending them. And then afterwards, they came up to me and they said they'd come to the show specifically for that joke. They fucking loved it. And I was so mad at myself. Why did I assume they couldn't take it? Why did I ever tell any joke that I was worried about somebody not being able to take? Why was I going to cater to someone's sensitivities at the expense of bringing my brand of laughter to others who do for sure enjoy it? I hope that all made sense. I like to laugh. Life is too sad if you think too seriously about it. I like to laugh about things many people find inappropriate. And if I start curbing that now, because it might hurt somebody's feelings, so much laughter is going to go away. This whole show is going to go away. So while I don't want to hurt feelings, I'm not going to hold back when it comes to a dark sense of humor. I'm going to try to minimize its hurtfulness. I put a lot of thought into it. I really do. But the dark humor will remain. Luciferina is strong inside me. I hope that made sense, Jessica. I think it was completely okay for you to be offended. I just hope that when you or any other listener gets offended, you think, was that really too far or just too far for me because of my personal experiences? And have I laughed many times at other things that were equally that far? Glad you and Charlie will still love the podcast. Tell Charlie I love them. Maybe someday we'll stutter and mush mouth our way through an incredibly sloppy conversation. And last, last, I promise, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe we're both wrong. Maybe we're both right not trying to be confusing. Just want to remind you that we, we make all this shit up as we go along. I'll, tr- I'll keep trying to keep, uh, you know, to stay true. Listen to me fumble now to my own dark sense of humor while minimizing collateral damage. And I hope most of you continue to enjoy this show. Fuck most, all of you. Why would I say most? Thank you for your continued input. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Thank you for your continued input. It's what makes this podcast special. And, uh, and I'll, and I'll talk to you next week. time suckers. I needed that. We all did. I love how my fumbling shows up as I'm trying to dress fumbling. Have a great week, everybody. Don't expect this much info next week. God dang, I keep going and getting these episodes longer. Eventually, I'll just stop recording one podcast in time to start the next one. Uh, don't stab anyone to death this week, even if you're pretty sure you can get away with it and keep on sucking. If the squirrel puppet doesn't fit, you must have quit. You can start your day off right when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book?